backbiting papa. Where I was 19 and 4. I was down in Louisiana on the killing floor. And I stopped by Algiers. I want to tell you, pal, that I was fighting your dumpling. If you try to steal my gas. Welcome to episode 8 of the Dark Horse Paranormal Podcast. I am your host, Chris Carr. And I'm Kristen Johnson. And that was Spider in Your Dumpling. That's by Arnold Doc Wiley. The last few lyrics of Spider in Your Dumpling go, I was down in Louisiana on the killing floor, and I stopped by Algiers, and I want to tell you, pal, that I'll put a spider in your dumpling if you try to steal my gal. He's referring to hoodoo. Hoodoo is African-American folk magic or root work. In this episode, we talk to the queen of hoodoo, Kat Ironwood. Kat Ironwood is an American writer, editor, graphic designer, typesetter, publisher, teacher, and practitioner of folk magic with an extensive career in the comic book industry. Kat is the proprietor of the Lucky Mojo Curio Company which you can find online at www.luckymojo.com. They are manufacturers and distributors of hoodoo and conjure supplies. They sell oils, powders, incense, baths, washes, herbs, resins, colognes, roots, minerals, curios, books, candles, statuary, and amulets. They're headquartered in Forestville, California, and we know from ordering there ourselves that they actually grow and uh, handpick with intention a lot of the herbs and uh, things that you can buy on this website. If you want to, you can ask and they're specified to your need. That's right. Um, also on their website, you can find archive radio shows, workshops, free spells, forums, and much, much more. So give that a visit, www.luckymojo.com. The first part of this interview was previously aired on our live show, Bigfoot and the Bunny, which is on the United Public Radio Network. Streamed live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, 8 p.m. Central, and 6 p.m. Pacific. Find Bigfoot and the Bunny, as well as Dark Horse Paranormal, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find us at www.bigfootandthebunny.com and, of course, www.darkhorseparanormal.com. Without further ado... Let's get this mother rolling. Welcome, Cat Ironwood. How are you? I'm fine and very glad to be here. Yeah, welcome to our show. We're very excited. Oh, and also happy birthday. I believe you had a birthday this week. Yep, I just turned 73. Well, happy birthday. Happy birthday. You can thank Facebook for that, (laughs) (laughs) which is the only way I could ever know anyone's birthday. I'm so bad with that. I've been like so bad with that lately, and I apologize to my follow- my friends. <laughs> so, Kat, many people conf- confuse hoodoo with voodoo or even Santeria, but hoodoo actually has a different lineage, and it is not simply a matter of swapping an H for a V. Can you tell us a little about the history of hoodoo in America? Sure. Um, First of all, to set the hoodoo voodoo um, confusion straight, it's just like any two words that rhyme, Um, you know, Fred and bread rhyme, but nobody confuses Fred with bread, you know. Right. So the problem with hoodoo and voodoo and why they were confused is due to systemic racism 
Um, and uh, the idea that all black people, all dark-skinned people, have something that they're all doing that's the same and white people defining what that is. So voodoo is a, a African language word, West African word that means spirit. Um, hoodoo is actually a Scottish word that means a spiky ghost, a ghost that's spiky. And um, it arrives uh, in English from the Gaelic hoodoo, which is the ghost that looks like a hawthorn tree. Hawthorns have spikes on the sides. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are geological formations called hoodoos, which are sandstone that's been weathered. So when you look at it from a distance, it looks like a figure with spikes as arms and, you know, as the sandstone has weathered. So um, how that word entered African-American language really has to do with the history of slavery. And black people were um, both slave and free persons of color prior to the emancipation uh, were uh, working as sailors and um, they got in touch with Irish and Scottish sailors and they adopted that word hoodoo. Um, not all African Americans can trace their origin back to the part of West Africa where the word voodoo is used and um, they really may have a connection or may not. So they are different words but um, white Americans had this idea that they wanted to cast African-Americans as very primitive and very African. And so they began to call what had been named hoodoo by, by American Africans. They began to call it voodoo to show a kind of an arch control over language. And no less a person than Zora Neale Hurston, the African-American novelist and folklorist, made the best comment on this. She said, hoodoo or as the white people pronounce it, voodoo. And she was using a double entendre on pronounce. They both pronounce it that way uh, verbally, but they also pronounce it from authority. We know better than you people what you're doing. You're doing voodoo. Voodoo is a polytheistic religion. Um, it's a complex religion. It has nothing to do with hoodoo. Hoodoo is just a name for African-American folk magic. And wow. Another name for it would be conjure or conjure, and another name is witchcraft. A lot of black people who grew up in the Virginia area simply adopted the English word witchcraft. And another word is root work, and that means working with roots because um, hoodoo is done with herbs and roots. And that brings us to your other question, Santeria. Um, Santeria means the worship of saints, and that's a Spanish name for African religion, otherwise known as Ifa, Lukumi. These are West African religions that are different than voodoo. And um, slaves were brought to Cuba who practiced those. And in order to not get punished for keeping retaining their African religion, they identified their um, different goddesses and gods or nature spirits or whatever you want to call them with saints. Mm -hmm. And so they were said to be practicing veneration of saints or Santeria. Also in Cuba, there were other people from the Congo area who were practicing something much more like hoodoo. And um, rather than calling it root work, they didn't have as many roots. They used sticks instead. In other words, sticks were the, the Spanish term for stick is palo. And so palo is the name for that uh, religion. But in America, the retention of African religion was minor and most African-Americans became Christians. So hoodoo survived the transition to being Christian just the way that 
Norwegian or Finnish or Swedish or Danish um, pagan folk magic survived the transition to Christian Lutheranism and is now known as trolldom. There's your answer. Trolldom. Thank you. <laughs> That's a great answer. So the answer to no, a, a interesting. <laughs> I'm going to get a little encyclopedia entry. It's <laughs> great. I, I lo love this. I love this. Okay. this awesome. So given what you just said, how, how does Hoodoo um, on a spiritual level see God, the Bible, saints, and other parts of Christianity? And how is that done differently than, say, the, the Lua's of Voodoo? They're not even related. See, because as I just said, um, first of all, saints are Catholic. And 90% or more, 94% of African-Americans are Protestant. So they would have no saints involved in their worship at all. They would worship the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. And most of that 94% are Baptists. So there are also African Methodist Episcopal and other, you know, uh, flavors. There are Pentecostal, Holiness Churches, Church of God in Christ, but most uh, black Americans who practice Hoodoo are Baptists, really 90% of them. Yeah, there are no saints. There, there's none of that stuff. There is the use of candle magic, which was adopted um, in the 1930s as candles became more popular. Um, and in New Orleans and in Baltimore and Washington, D.C., where their settlers, the colonial settlers, were Catholics, like Maryland was named after Mary the Virgin. So the slaves that were uh, captured and put into um, uh, service in those states were converted to Catholicism. And somewhat in New York State, there was, uh, there was a bit of Catholic also. And so they might have saint veneration, but that's not the main thrust of hoodoo. The main thrust of hoodoo is Baptist. And so you would be working actually with the more secular things, that the products that are used, the roots and the herbs, are perceived of as secular. There is a large um, inclusion of African ancestor veneration. And because when spiritualism was developed as a religion in the 1850s, spiritualism was identified with um, emancipation of slaves and also identified with the female right to vote, female suffrage, and also um, black suffrage, also the temperance movement and also some sacred sex movements all got involved in spiritualism. And one of the most influential spiritualists of the 19th century was an African-American man named Pascal Beverly Randolph, who was um, a free person of color. I think today we would call him biracial. His father was a white slave owner. His mother was a slave. And he was a spiritualist lecturer, and he was responsible for the... Um, inclusion of spiritualism among hoodoo practitioners, especially in New Orleans, where he lived for a while, in Memphis, and um, in other larger urban areas. So spiritualism and the contact with ghosts and the dead, and so, uh, you know, that kind of a spirituality made a kind of a good transition to from African slaves who had ancestor veneration already in their culture. And so you'll see that black Baptist churches have a different funerary rites and different ways of dealing with the dead than white Baptists do. Wow. I never knew that any of that. That's great. It's so interesting. Sure. It is. It's very interesting. You know, Hoodoo wouldn't be what it was and what it is 
had not there been racial segregation. It would have been absorbed into mainstream America just the same way that, oh, you know, Pennsylvania Dutch ideas got absorbed or German Lutheran ideas got absorbed. Even a lot of Jewish ideas became absorbed into mainstream. You know, you all know uh, so many Jews who just, although they are, they retain their Jewishness, they, you know, play along as, quote, regular Americans. But this was not allowed to black people because they were segregated. And because of that, their their folkways, their culture and their customs stayed somewhat separate, just as Jewish customs stayed somewhat separate as long as racial segregation against Jews endured. Um, and so discovering hoodoo for white people is often kind of a big wow, because there's all this stuff going on that you didn't know about. And then there's this moment where a lot of white people will say, why didn't they tell me? Well, you never asked, you know. Right. So not every black person practices hoodoo or knows about it. Not every white person would practice um, English folk magic or Scottish folk magic. It's just a current or thread in the culture. What um, role does karma play in hoodoo for someone seeking revenge or also love magic? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> well, karma, you, karma is a Hindu a concept, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes called the law of cause and effect. Um, if you place that in a Baptist context, and remember that the Baptist church is a Protestant church that sought to return to original Christianity, by which they literally meant Old Testament Judaism without a lot of the Judaism. <laughs> so Baptist religion is more like Jewish religion than, say, Catholicism is. It, it harkens back. They, they use a lot of proof texting from the Old Testament. They call it the Old Testament, the Tanakh. They also use a lot of the Psalms and things like that in, in scripture. So um, insofar as hoodoo is Baptist, uh, revenge is part of the Bible. Um, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Mm, and there is absolutely. nothing about karma, but there is something about justification. And so in in the Baptist and prior to that, the Jewish tradition, there's this idea of balancing compassion or mercy with severity or justice, severe justice. And um, usually if you, in hoodoo, if you want someone to um, suffer a just punishment, you would not necessarily make that punishment your own. You, don't, you would not say, I curse and doom you to hell, you bad person, you. You'd use a little right. harsher language than that. But you would actually call upon God. And the, by God, I mean Jehovah. Um, and so you would say, uh, just as an example, um, Lord, I come before you today with my head bowed down and a humble heart. And, um, Lord, I thank you for all the mercies you have shown me and all the good you have done. But now, Lord, I have before you a problem I'd like to bring, and I want you to judge. So-and-so has done such and such to me and mine, and this has continued for a long time. And, Lord, we can't take it anymore. Lord, I want you to deal with him harshly, and I want you to recognize his sins and faults and flaws, and I want you to either convict him of his sins— and let him reform and throw himself on the mercy seat, or Lord, take him home, take him away, and judge him yourself. But Lord, if I have asked this question in error, 
because you have another plan for him, and I don't know your plans, Lord. And if he has a good heart, and I will see that by and by, or he will show mercy and help to others as part of your plan, Lord, please do not judge me for having asked for his death. And I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So that's it. That's how you do it. In other words, there's no karma. You're simply applying to God for a favor. Wow. It even falls under the rule of protection. Yes. You know, to seek mm -hmm. vengeance or, you know, you're worried about the health and uh, welfare of your family. Yes. And you retaliate in a, you know, a way that you, perhaps you're imagining murder or something like that. It really is for for a greater good, or at least uh, as it's perceived to be. Um, and, and going on that, what about, um, about love magic? Because that's a common uh, mm -hmm. thing. Make, uh, make him love me, make her love me. Well, that's, that's there's two kinds of love magic. Uh, you know, well, there's several kinds, but, but the most, they fall into two major categories, seductive and coercive. And um, seductive love magic might be wearing a perfume that's a, like love me perfume that's made with herbs from roots and minerals, whatever, that are um, attributed to have um, certain linkages to love and sexuality, like Damiana and catnip and, and um, whatever it may be, cherry bark. There's a whole bunch of them. Um, that's seductive love magic. Nobody much opposes that, although there are some other religions that are not Christianity that would not allow that. For instance, um, Wicca doesn't like seductive uh, magic for the most part because it's considered to be tampering with someone's free will. Free will, right. But um, but Christianity is not Wicca, that's for sure. So um, then coercive love magic is usually confined to making a person carry through on a promise that they made. Let's say a man promises to marry and then the lady gets pregnant and then he dumps her. Well, that's a that's a justified coercive magic because he, you're going to make him come back. But it might not even be as extreme as that. It might be that a man, you know, played you and dated you and slept with you. And then you're going to say, hey, you know, I think he's still playing around or he's going on those Internet sites. I got to tie his nature. And nature is a, a an old African-American term for libido. I've got to tie his nature and so that he will not look at anyone but me. But that's considered justified because he already had promised himself to you. That's so interesting, too. Um, where do you see things like aliens, Bigfoot, fairy, demons, and other entities playing a role in hoodoo culture? Oh, what a great question that is. Thank you. Well, I would say that... Um, depending on what part of the country. Now, hoodoo is not uniform. You know, there's hoodoo in Georgia that's different than the hoodoo in Mississippi. Similar, different. New Orleans is different. Now they're all becoming kind of flattened with the Internet. Everything's kind of becoming leveled. But in different areas, there are different spirits uh, that are known, and I would call them locational spirits. Um, for instance, um, the Patrick County Fairy Stones are associated with fairies in Patrick mm -hmm. County. Um, the um, there are ghosts that haunt uh, locations in hoodoo. The spirit of a person can be accessed or contacted through their graveyard dirt, through their grave. Now, this goes against Baptist cosmology, by the way, and theology. 
because the Baptists actually believe that after death you would sleep until the last judgment and you'd be revived. They're not a rapturite. They, they believe that there's going to be a last judgment. Gabriel blows the trumpet. They all wake up. But Hoodoo retained, this is where it deviates from white Baptist, Hoodoo retained this African idea that the spirits of the dead are available for contact. And so many, many, many people do work with the spirits of the dead. From the spirits of the dead, there then it sort of reaches out to locational spirits, the gatekeepers of the cemetery, or um, ghosts that are unsettled spirits that haunt. Um, I don't know that Hoodoo has ever had a place for Bigfoot, um, because that's more of a, my history of it, my knowledge of it, started off more in the western states, uh, forested areas. Um, but there are, for instance, in the Appalachians and the Ozarks, there are also locational spirits that are known and talked about in hoodoo. And I'll just give you one example, and that is the behinder. Have you ever heard of a behinder? No, no, no that's not, not at all. A behinder is um, a spirit that is behind you. You no. try to turn around, you can't see it because it's always behind you. And um, they're very frightening, but they don't do anything. I mean, you know, if you just stop and sit, they just stay behind you, right? But if you run, they stay behind you. And people can be terrified to the point of falling off a cliff, you know, um, you know, dropping dead of a heart attack if they have a behinder behind them. But it's one of the things I learned when I was young. If there's a behinder behind you, just take a few breaths. And then it's really there. You can sense it. But that's mm -hmm. all. It's, it's a kind of a tricker spirit, you know? And all it's going to do is be behind you. In um, Christian tradition, stamp your feet three times and say, get thee behind me, Satan, and whirl around three times and it's gone. So there's a lot of that kind of spirit work in hoodoo, but it's not all um, aliens from outer space. Again, that's a, that's a more a recent phenomenon. Hoodoo has a, a much older root. I know a lot of hoodooists who believe in aliens, and I know a lot who believe in paranormal uh, stuff. But of them all, it would be the English idea of the locational ghost, particularly the ghost of someone who, what they call, died bad. If someone died bad, boy, their ghost will be around. And um, you can work with those ghosts. You can get them to haunt somebody else. For instance, if I wanted somebody to suffer, and they had been... Well, let's say just as an example, they were um, not paying child support. It was a man not paying child support, and I wanted him to pay child support. I could go get the the graveyard dirt of someone who died bad, who um, was condemned and convicted for a crime, and I could sprinkle that on that man. And I'd say now to the spirit, now you haunt him until he pays child support. Right. I'm familiar with like some of that kind of path work mm -hmm. where you work with the, the dead to do your bidding mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. And uh, the graveyard dirt, certainly. Uh, so when you do that, do you have um, like a, a three, who do have a, a three fold or a tenfold, like it'll come back to you? No, honey. Something that, like that. Um, no, 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 no. Karma, I call karma the one fold law. Karma it comes back to you, mm -hmm. right? The threefold law is only in the religion of Wicca. The number of black Americans who practice Wicca is very small. The number of black Americans who both practice Wicca and hoodoo is vanishingly small. And there is no threefold law in, 
uh, Christianity. And some Wiccans will go, they're very, um, I guess you could say stern, they call it a tenfold law. I don't know. I, it just, mm-hmm. it, it becomes a, a, an impediment to practice. Right. right. I didn't, I, I didn't I understand, you know, know if. I believe in that myself. I, I think we are our own karma. It goes you know, to the end of the karma. Right. I call it the one you just law. mentioned. The one-fold law. Just what mm-hmm. you do comes back. That happens. I get that. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm going to give you another example of use of the spirit in, this is very common. Um, let's say a mother dies and she leaves a little baby. And the baby just cries and cries and cries, may not even be know that it had a mama, maybe just an infant. And the baby cries and it won't stop crying. And they say that the ghost of the mother is haunting that baby. And the baby won't thrive. So you go to the graveyard of the mother and you make an offering there, usually coins or some nice offering. And then you say, now, mama, I'm going to bring you back home so you can see your baby and don't bother us anymore, but I want you so you can see your baby. You pick up some of that graveyard dirt, you bring it to the threshold of the house where the baby is, and you, cross, you lay down that line of dirt across the doorway, and you say, "Now, Mama, you can see your baby is safe, and you can see your mama, you can see your baby come in and out, but don't be don't be haunting anymore." Well, it's great if if, if it you know works. <laughs> it does. It does. You know? I mean, the thing is, these are old time. Uh, Remedies, they work, they've been known for years and years. Sure. Um, can do a lot of stuff with sure. that graveyard dirt. Rebecca, <laughs> I'll Rebecca you one more with graveyard dirt. Again, very typical of hoodoo and of ghosts. So in this one, uh, let's say you want somebody to love you, but they don't love you. But you had another lover before, and she died of, God knows, some disease, and it was very tragic, and she loved you dearly, but she died. You go to her graveyard. And you get some of her graveyard dirt and you go to the woman who doesn't love you and you just put a little of that dirt on your fingers and in your hand and you touch her on the back and you say, now you say it under your breath. Now love me the way that so-and-so loved me. And that spirit will enter into her and cause her to start to love you. That's coercive, mm-hmm. but it's not destructive. That's very realistic. Actually, that fits along with a lot of the, the stuff I've learned over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we so have a. We had a, a question, question from Rebecca M asking if that's an intraquil spirit. I'm not sure what that is. It's tranquil. Oh, yeah. Tranquil. So Rebecca knows what we're talking about. Okay. Awesome. Awesome, Rebecca. <laughs> intranquil spirits entered into hoodoo actually through the Catholic Church and along the Mexican border. And um, uh, there, there's a, um, there is a Mexican spirit you might have heard of, La Llorona. She's the crying. Oh, yeah. Mother, yeah. right. Show honor. Right. The lady okay. in white. Yes. Well, the intranquil spirit is a similar idea, but it uses an image from the Catholic Church that shows God judging a soul. It's called something like one moment in eternity. It's an old Mexican folk art print. It shows a scales and there's a, a person in it, uh, an angel and there's a devil. And this is like your soul is going to be weighed. And there's images of a person doing charity through their life. And when they die, an angel is standing at their bed to receive them to heaven. And then there's someone who's cruel and horrible. And when they die, there's demons all around their bed. And this picture is called um, the omnipresence of God, omnipresentia de Dios. So this picture is identified with the intranquil spirit, the one who has been weighed but is not going to go to heaven and not going to go to hell. And these intranquil spirits, you could say that in, in a Catholic sense, they would be permanently in purgatory. And so this was 
in northern Mexico. This came over the border into Texas, uh, Arizona, New Mexico, Southern California. And by the 80s, it was very common, and it entered into hoodoo really through the through the um, a shop run by one particular guy named Papa Jim. Papa Jim was a Papa Jim Sycophus, and he was on the in San Antonio it was on the Texas Mexico border, and he began to promote this, and it took off. And now you'll see a lot of African American people applying to the Intranquil Spirit. So the Intranquil Spirit prayer is a destructive curse disguised as a love spell or vice versa. And it calls upon the intranquil spirit, of whom there are many. There's not just one intranquil spirit. It calls upon an intranquil spirit to haunt your lover who has left you. If your lover has left you, you, you call upon this intranquil spirit to follow them. And you pray that neither uh, an unmarried woman, a widow, a, a whatever, will, no one will ever marry this man, if it's a man, and um, that they will run around the world and they will um, pant for water and never find it and seek love and never find it until they run around the world and come back to you and fall at your feet as humble as a sheep. And this spell actually, in my experience, is, is more destructive than love-like. Um, and it does not use graveyard dirt. So to answer Rebecca, this is a more conceptual idea of this in Tranquil Spirit. It's not Hoodoo is mostly contact magic. You touch something, you make a doll, you make a mojo bag, you have a, a charm or something like that. You put a powder on. This is associated with Catholic style, but not Catholic necessarily, a candle magic. And so the Intranquil Spirit spells are um, more um, theoretical than they are contact driven. That makes sense. Now, a lot of the... Um remedies in, in folk medicine are, are derived from hoodoo and they're derived from Native Americans here in mm -hmm. North America. Um, I, I think, is it a fair statement to say that a lot of these remedies kind of became the basis for uh, the medical industry, and like particularly in like the 1800s? Well, yes, but going back to Roman and times, Greek times. So um, you can look up in books of ancient, um, early and mid and late classical times, the medical herbs that were known in Europe and the Middle East also had magical analogies. And so in hoodoo, we're dealing with a culture that got a big shock and a big blow when people were ripped away from where they lived. They grew up in a tropical area. They used fresh plants because there's really no seasons in this, that normal sense that we have in the temperate zones, right? Mm -hmm. And they didn't have frozen ground. They didn't have, you know, so they, the plants were available. But they were kept captive by people who came from the north and who had developed um, a system of drying herbs and using them in, you know, dried herbs culinarily used. There's, they then were brought to North America where it was also a temperate zone and where the native people also had a system of using dried herbs. And whereas those that went to Cuba and practiced Paula, they used fresh herbs because whatever. But slaves were not allowed to like send to Africa for some special root or herbs. So they made substitutions. And um, people all around the world can recognize an analog plant. So if you take a plant that's um, found in Africa and you found one that's very similar in the U.S., you would just substitute it. But you also might ask a Native American, what do you use that for? And it might turn out to be the same thing because these plants do have medical properties and those translate as 
magical properties. So in Hoodoo, there are several streams of plant magic. One stream is African remnants. Some of those remnants were of plants that had medical value or culinary value, which were then exported around the world from Africa. Number two, Jewish Middle Eastern um, spices, because in the Jewish religion, there are certain spices that have to be used for certain ceremonies at certain times. And as Jews were conquered by the Romans, and first the Greeks and then the Romans, and driven out, they established trade lines whereby they could get these Middle Eastern and circum-Mediterranean herbs, including citrus and things up north, up into England, up into northern Germany and so forth, into Russia. And so they were known as spice merchants. And they came to America very early on, before the Revolutionary War, bringing these spices, because as they traded those spices up into the north, it changed the cooking habits and the medical habits of the uh, northern, uh, you know, English, Scottish, Irish, Danish, Norwegian, Swedish people. They began to want to have cloves and cinnamon and all this great stuff that the Jews were transporting to them. But they also had their own herbs, which they used, you know, things like yarrow and, and feverfew and all these other things. And also Mediterranean European herbs like basil and oregano and uh, Dittany of Crete had spread up from the Mediterranean after the um, Crusades. And so those were now desirable and, and uh, the English began to cook with them. So then the English go and capture these slaves from Africa and they say, now you've got to cook for us and we want you to use these European herbs and we want you to use these Middle Eastern spices. And oh, by the way, let's go ask that local Native American what they do for a fever, right? Because we don't have the right plant here. And so the, the black root workers incorporated all of those four things, African, uh, Jewish, European, and Native American into hoodoo. And they all have analogs to medicine, most, or to the doctrine of signatures, to the shape, like a, a violet has a leaf like a heart, and therefore it's used for love. Uh, you know, that kind of doctrine of signatures work is also comes out of sure. late so classical those, antiquity. That's excellent. That's excellent. I think a lot of it actually did have a scientific basis as well. Oh, so yeah. Some of the, the herbs that maybe people use to leave the symptoms of a cold and yes. that kind of thing. One of the first things I was taught when I was taught how to make up an herbal tea was no matter what the condition, whether it was for money, for love, uh, the person who taught me said, you have to put in some little herb that's going to make them sweat. Not a lot, but put in a little bit of what's called a diaphoretic herb into the tea. Um, when they break a sweat, they'll, they'll, it'll focus their attention. And another person told me, you know, I, I put a little bit of a laxative in most of my magical teas. And I said, how much of a laxative? Well, not very much, just a little. But again, you're going to get their attention. Now, among the Cherokee Indians, they had what some people, anthropologists, call the vomiting cure. The Cherokees believed that um, vomiting would be a cure for many, many diseases, and so they had a whole series of different plants and herbs that were used for vomiting and this um, for purification through vomiting. And this was entered into hoodoo. And you'll see um, there's a whole history of hoodoo doctors who were part Native American and part black. Um, these were either from escaped slaves who joined the Native Americans or Native Americans who were illegally captured and uh, classified as 
black and made slaves, despite the fact that they were Native American. Both things happened. And they often will use a vomiting cure uh, if they have that Native um, heritage. Hmm. I see, I see. And with the spiciness, I was going to say just about anything makes me sweat that spicy, even though I love spicy food. So, sure, you know, sure. I, I, I could be uh, yeah. hexed by buffalo wings pretty easily. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, see, the idea, though, is that this gets out any, you know, it's a cleanser, it's a purifier. There are all these types of, of state changers, you know, that will purify you and put you in a new frame, you know, and sweating is one of those things. One of the things I, I wanted to ask you about, I, I'm sorry, Chris, if you were about to ask her the same thing. No, it's you, okay. we, We're taking turns with the questions, and I'm probably overstepping my bounds. But um, oddly enough, there were a few things um, I wanted to ask, and one of the things was about blues musicians and maybe some MP3s of things you liked, and um, a few different things, including coronavirus, which your husband e uh, emailed me all today, which seemed really odd and synchronistic-like uh, before <laughs> I got to ask him. <laughs> it was like everything I was thinking about, boom, it just arrived right there. So thank you. Thank you, Nagasiva. Appreciate it. <laughs> was, uh, that was extremely appropriate. And thank you for yeah. answering on the chat as well. Yeah, that was perfect. So, I, um, so one thing about I blues music, about I, I'm just going to jump in here about blues music. Sure, um, uh, blues music is African-American music played with mostly European instruments, except for the banjo, which isn't derived from an African instrument. But the guitar, the, you know, all of the, the piano, the harmonica, all of those are European instruments. But the melody lines of the blues, those minor flattened notes, the those are African scales and um the sync um you know the, the the way the the way the songs are done is african style so people have said because there is a similarity to folk magic around the world based on the plants that are used so people have said well hoodoo is just the same as white appalachian folk magic and it's not and the way to prove it is there are no white country string band music about hoodoo there's only black music about hoodoo until Creedence Clearwater Revival. I mean, really, until the, the 60s. So, um, right. so when you look at these older blues songs, they'll talk about goofer dust. They'll talk about, which is an old uh, hoodoo formula. Uh, they'll talk about mojo bag. I'm going to Louisiana, going to get me a mojo hand. They'll talk about um, uh, she's going to set my name under a candle or whatever it's going to be, these are all in these songs. And um, a few years ago, we put out a CD just of songs that are blue songs that mention hoodoo. And uh, by that, you can prove it's part of black culture exclusively and was never part of white culture. Wow. Right. And I want to get a little more in depth on that when we um, go off air. We're going to, uh, for our listeners who don't know, we also do the Dark Horse Paranormal podcast, and we're going to do an extended interview tonight. So when we're we're with done Kat. talking with on uh, Bigfoot and the Bunny, mm -hmm. we're going to continue. We're going to get delve into that and uh, Mojo Bags. I'd like to, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. Ah, uh, yeah. It looks like you got this great history. I, I've heard you talk on Mojo Bags before, and it's really, really interesting and in, uh, music and uh, some other topics. But uh, one of the things that I know is on everybody's mind, of course, is coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And um, I was going to ask you if there was something people could do at home to, that maybe, you know, aren't outright practitioners to, to um, 
help them help prevent it or survive it, you know, with their families. And as it turns out, you have been working on a, a project kind of like that, but it might be more practitioner based. But do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes, um, I do. First of all, from an herbalist standpoint, there are some really good herbs that are preventive and helpful. Not so much when you get it, but preventive, build you up. Um, it has been found, and I can talk about this in Western scientific terms, but I prefer to talk about it in, in uh, herbal terms. A willow, which is the basis of aspirin, um, aspirin has been shown to lower the death rate. If people have been prescribed a baby aspirin before they got coronavirus, those who were taking the aspirin regularly have a lower death rate, even though they get the virus. So you want that willow in your tea. And there are other herbs that are used like that, um, forsythia um, and, um, oh, many uh, ginseng and, and um, um, ginger, ginseng. elderberry. Th th these are good known formulas uh, that can be found um, on the net and, uh, you know, lists of those herbs. But the other thing is we do spells, and um, who do spells vary? Some of them are very straight up, simple, uh, you know, it might be light a candle, but usually there's some sort of contact work, like I've mentioned a few. But there also are spells in hoodoo that come from a more, what you might call a cult or hermetic tradition. These entered into hoodoo after emancipation. They're part of what I call urban hoodoo. Um, after emancipation, uh, the smarter and more brilliant root workers, you know, they read books and they wanted to learn and they, they saw stuff about, you know, classical Greco-Roman magic and stuff. And, and they also became part of the Hermetic Revival, people like Pascal Beverly Randall. So in Hoodoo, you will find, for instance, the use of the Solomonic seals and uh, the seals of Moses and other things which are mostly associated with European occultism. And um, my friends and I, um, Lara Rivera, uh, Dr. Jeremy Weiss, and I worked on a coronavirus spell that used a particular amulet called the Radlet amulet. It's a mysterious amulet written in Hebrew. It has the, the date in Hebrew equivalent of 1905 on it. It's only known in one copy, and it was found at the Radlet synagogue in London, someone brought it there and said, look, I've had this in my family for years, you should have it. And so it was published and put on the web. And the Radlid amulet is an amulet against the plague or any plague. And it's a, a wonderful, it's, it's unusual. It's just this, this strange little amulet, the Radlid amulet. So we built the, the spell around that using um, a triangle, which is often used to, to represent the Trinity. And there are three herbs. There are, um, uh, it's a, a bay leaf, um, a, a clove of garlic, and a coin. And I have to mention here, minerals are considered herbs, and so are coins. They're, they just go with herbs, so that's a coin. And this is for keep your finances, the coin, to keep protection from ill health, that's the garlic, and to keep a calm house with everybody locked in the house together so tempers don't flare, peaceful home, that's the bay leaf. There are three candles, and you put out the names of everybody, and you have the, the Radlet amulet there. It is not unheard of. I mean, it sounds strange, but it's not. A, many older root workers worked with Hebrew uh, charms, and so this is a, one of the, it's not so much eclectic. It is eclectic, but it, it, we came up with this spell 
but it's uh, we published it um, at the um, Association of Independent Readers and Workers. You can just look it up, um, just sure. like you know, coronavirus outreach spell. And then you end up in the very hoodoo style, making a packet where you wrap the little rattled amulet, which is on paper. You wrap it around these things. You've lit your candles and you have incense going. And the incense is reference to the book of Numbers in the Bible. And uh, in which there was a plague and Aaron's, uh, Moses said to Aaron, take the incense and go around the people and smoke them with this incense. And so you go around your house and smoke it. And it's a, it's a, it's a biblical based hoodoo spell, modern hoodoo spell that's, um, I think quite effective. I used I, it. I thought I this was here like the coolest thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Taking a look at it and the candles and the uh, the kind of Kabbalah influence with the the Jewish stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a it's a mix up. It's really a, a mess up because uh, the way the herbs are used is straight up hoodoo, and then um, they, and then of course the biblical scriptural they, stuff straight hoodoo because that would be you know. And anyway, you end up with this little folded packet you put over your lintel of your door. And that is a reference to the Bible, to the idea of the Passover, you know, we put something over your door. But you find that in hoodoo a lot. There's a lot of over-the-door spells in old um, African-American folklore. Right. And I think also maybe um, spells that involve, like, laying dust out, like, in a line for them to walk over as well, right? Yes, that's true. That's, yes, that's a whole, that's more African. Um, I think that the influence of the over-the-door spell is from the Bible and comes in through the Baptist slash Jewish influence. But the floor, the foot track magic is very African. There's so much foot track magic in hoodoo. Um, also laying out a line to protect like a red brick dust so that no one can step over who's evil or um, fiery wall of protection powder across the door so that no evil people can step across. And and most of these things are are available at uh, luckymojo.com, and I, I want, which leads me to as we're getting getting toward the uh, the end of the hour, uh, where can people find you? Like I, I did want to make a comment about your correspondence courses mm-hmm. uh, while yeah. we're on the air because I, I thought that was such a a great thing that you you're offering people. And one of the things I noticed was the homework in one of them mentioned um, paying for graveyard dirt. Yeah. And if you're paying for it, I'm, I'm sure I'm right when I say this. You're talking about leaving an offering, right? Because yeah. offerings pay uh, play a, a large role in that, and I love that. Uh, whenever uh, Kristen and I visit cemeteries um, for our show or, or what we're, whatever we're working, working on, on, we tend to leave offerings. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was good. And then it didn't outright say it's an offering. You just said paying, pay for some well, great yard dirt. And I knew uh, what you meant. I'm so it's like, saying, oh, that's. I'm going to say something about that. Who do uses a very secular terminology? Paying for the dirt is the common phrase. And if someone says it's an offering, that might be seen as being too religious. It's just considered to be the, the normal way to speak it, to say paying for the dirt. You buy the dirt. Um, but yeah, it is an offering in a in an um, anthropological sense. It is yeah. Um, where you can find me is luckymojo.com. I've written uh, thousands of web pages there. I also have another site called Herb Magic, all one word, herbmagic.com. That's only about herbs and how they're used, and all of those usages are taken from my compressed you know, extracts from my much bigger book called Hoodoo urban root magic um 
you can find me at uh, Southern Spirits, which has a hyphen. I hate it, but it has a hyphen. It's southern-spirits.com. That contains um, more uh, historical work. There's a Lucky Mojo. There's a site on blues. It's luckymojo.com forward slash blues.html. There's really so many things. I'm a member of AIR, the Association of Independent Readers and Root Workers. We have about 650 pages on hoodoo and other magical and religious traditions. And I've written probably half of that site myself with my colleagues, uh, who I must give credit to. Um, many, many hands have worked on that site. And I'm also, um, you can find me at Amazon. My books are for sale. Um, Lucky Mojo Publishing Company has published uh, about 35 books on folk magic. Yeah, it's an amazing website. I mean, I don't know how many things you have for sale, but it, it's huge. And there is so wow. much information uh, <laughs> on there. I, I love, uh, you know, just perusing the pages because there was a lot to uh, to draw from for this interview. And uh, um, I like it anyways. I'm a huge fan of the, the art. And we'll talk about that mm-hmm. in the comic book industry uh, in the podcast and I, we have we still have a lot of questions for you, Kat. Yeah. I'm sorry. Oh, sure. I'm sorry. I'm sure, sorry. Well, that's fine. <laughs> and as far as the course goes, if someone really is interested, I do teach a year-long course. It's in the form of a 432-page book. And um, it's called the Hoodoo Root Work Correspondence Course. But you have to buy some products and get to know me before I'll let you in. I don't let just people in off the street because they never really succeed. <laughs> so... I lo- that course, you can read about it at my Lucky Mojo site. And there are plenty of books there available for people who are interested in hoodoo or have heard yes. this interview and just want to, you know, stick their toe right. in the water the, as the, well. There's there's dozens of books, and I didn't write them all. They're written by all of my various colleagues. And um, there are books on divination, books on folk magic. And they're kind of broken into those which are about a condition or situation, like um, love or money. And those about a method like baths or mojo bags. Excellent. You ask is hit a man. My friend, don't be no fool. It certainly he no woman. Couldn't hardly be no you. I'm so crazy in my head. I could run and jump into the sea. by other pathwork and conversely uh, how do you see conjure influencing other paths oh my um, I, you know I, this is going to be hard for me to answer without stepping on somebody's feelings and I don't mean to um, okay. I claim no specialness for myself as being in hoodoo I'm not black I'm Jewish I got into it because my 
grandfather collected Bavarian Catholic folklore, but he was Jewish and um, had a great collection of the stuff till Hitler came and, you know, they had to flee. Right. And, um, and I was taught to collect folklore. It just was my hobby in my family. A lot of people collected folklore in my family, also natural history. So I ran into, uh, I had black friends in school, then I ran into a hoodoo shop once by mistake, and I mean, I didn't know what it was. I thought I was going into, I said candles and spiritual supplies, and I walked in thinking it would be a Judaica shop, because I thought it would have candles in it, you know, and it was an African-American hoodoo shop in Oakland, California, and um, my family is um, super left-wing, left-leaning. You're so lucky. Oh, <laughs> we were lucky. Yeah, lucky you get you get Hitler if you're lucky. Um, my mo- that's the ghost of my mother speaking. Um, uh, so, so, um, and my my father um, was very connected in the black community. I have black relatives, but I'm not descended from them. In other words, he's Sicilian, Sephardic Jews married African Americans in Staten Island. It's a long, complicated story. So, this all became part of what I did and what I do. So you're asking about eclectic and other paths. I never considered myself to be a hoodoo expert. Like I said, I, I moved to Missouri to collect Ozarks folk magic at one point. My idea was just going to be collect folk m- magic from around America. And I was influenced by Zora Neale Hurston and people like that. And when the Internet came along, I really felt I had to put some of this online because at the time there were very few black people online because the price of computers was very high and systemic racism had led to economic disparity. And I I really just wanted to put some of this stuff out, but actually I was putting out all types of folklore, the material culture of folklore. In other words, um, I had a thing called the Lucky W Amulet Archive, and it was just about lucky charms. And, um, but suddenly I got a call from a woman who wanted some John the Conqueror route, and she was black and she'd found my phone number. She worked for the government, the US government in um, Washington. This is during Bush era. And um, one thing led to another, and I started offering John the Conquer Roots for sale, and it led to the founding of the Lucky Mojo Curio Company in 1994. Excellent. So um, there were a lot of Jewish owners of these um, conjure shops, uh, particularly because uh, Jews were often in the cosmetics and chemistry and uh, candle and allied fields. And they were willing to deal with black people, whereas white Americans would not. So I felt I was just fitting into this realm that actually people who had been my relatives were involved in. My mother's cousin, Liesel, had worked in a hoodoo um, drugstore in New York City, for instance. And I was related to people who ran the Lucky Heart Company in Memphis and so forth and so on. And so I thought, OK, I'll just fit in right here and serve the black community. Well, what happened with the internet was that suddenly, and I mean with a pretty much a blinding flash, all of these white pagans found out about it, partly because I was well known through comics, but partly because they were looking for magic, the word magic. And I began to be approached by them. And and again, I don't want to step on anyone's toes, but their ideas of what black culture was was wrong and 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 they weren't interested in black culture they just wanted like i said they just wanted the spells i get what you mean yeah um so i began ignorant towards it yeah and a lot of people just i began trying to be well they they just they would say well i want this spell to make 
Joey Love Me or whatever it would be. So I began to try to hold dialogues with them, and they would say things like, why are you always mentioning Jesus? Which was kind of funny because I really am Jewish, but I, I, I'm true to the tradition. And um, and Jesus was a Jew, so I don't care. And um, and so they would say, why do you always mention Jesus? I want to pray to the goddess, the triple goddess. And I'd say, why don't you go practice this other thing, your other path? Why are you coming into hoodoo and not respecting black culture? And it kind of sounded funny because I'm not black, but I really felt I had to defend something uh, uh, to, you know, to... Sure, absolutely. Yeah. So, but eventually black people came onto the internet in huge numbers and now they're all over the internet. So I don't need to function in that role anymore. But it did, it was a moment there where I, I was a little sharp tempered with people. I would imagine, especially uh, coming up in the sixties and, you know, that being um, your, your time where you're probably fighting the most, right? Well, yeah. Yeah unrest and right. that kind of thing yes. right. yeah. you know i i don't think um history uh is very accurate as not at all they teach us in school you know nope. uh chris and i have have spoken out you know quite a bit about native american history right and how unfair that was and what we really eugenics did. and things and right up to the how 70s eugenics 80s. was a a thing in still the right <laughs> And it started um, before Hitler, so yeah, yeah. absolutely, of course, yeah. And I mean, uh, sure, but it, the, the point here is to what I'm trying to get to is that um, I then faced backlash from black people saying, "Why is this white woman teaching hoodoo?" Well, first of all, I don't identify as white; I identify as Jewish. And you could ask any European, "Can you tell the difference between a German and a Jew?" And of course, they can. You just have to be attuned to it you know a lot of people can't tell the difference between someone who's korean japanese or chinese but if you're around a lot of asian people you can and so i felt i you know but i don't have to fight against black people to defend myself so now as time has moved on um i feel that here i am i've held this thing i've served it for free I, you know I, I except for the course that i teach and the products that i make which are handicraft the knowledge I just share right back to the community because it's not mine. It was just given to me, shared with me, and I share it back. But there is a lot of of um, hurt feelings about who owns what, what path is whose. And um, I just sit with it. I don't do anything about it. Um, I have heard lies told by white people that hoodoo is white. I've heard lies told by black people, that only black people can practice hoodoo, that white people never did, that's not true. Um, and um, and there's, you know, studies that can show you that. You it would to seem to it. me that at the crux of everything, you were talking about emotion and uh, yes, it may be a rejection uh, from society, right? So if yes. a person feels rejected from society for whatever reason, whatever their color, their religion, whatever, mm -hmm. you know, they may also feel the same feelings that a uh, slave felt, you know. And well, a, to a certain extent, you still existed. can come and go as you please. You might get beat up in school, but you still can come and go as you please until they either whip you to death, um, you know, destroy your life, take your children away from you, or in the case of Jews, put you in the ovens or, you yeah. know kill you and throw you down a well. I mean, you right. know, I mean, these you know, these we're not, it's not a game. we can't play a game of who suffered most. Yeah, it's, not, right. it's not a productive exactly. 
uh, contest. So when you talk about eclectic paths and Mm -hmm. alternate paths, there's another thing that's going on, which is that I have black friends in hoodoo who, if I was to ask them, or I have, what is your religion? They might say I'm a spiritualist. They might say I'm eclectic. They might say I'm Hindu. They -hmm. might say I practice a Native American path. In other words, black people are as free to choose a path as white people are. That's right. Any Anybody, everybody can. Yeah. So I have Wiccan friends who are black. Um, and, you know, there are histories that go with certain religions that show that there was discrimination in the past. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we always have today to make friends. And um, that's the best I can say about it. Today that, we can make new friends. So That's wonderful. Yeah, I try to be a friend to everyone. That's all I have I to say about and your path. I but do the same there thing. There's no one way. There's no one. I guess the point. There's no other way to live. You have to be. Was that you know you don't necessarily have to be black or or oppressed <laughs> to practice hoodoo, or or is that not true? No, I believe you don't have to be black to practice hoodoo because I know a lot of people who are white who practice hoodoo long before I was I, born. That's but, right. You but, yourself are not black. But, but if the, you don't have any black friends, wait, 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 wait. If you don't have any black friends, you got a problem. Because it, that would be like if I was going to teach a course on on um, Italian cooking, and I said to you, listen, well, I'm, I can tell you a lot about Italian cooking. I've studied it through and through and through and through. And by the way, I'd like you to go to this Italian restaurant, check out this Italian book. And they go, oh, I don't know any Italian people. I don't want to know any Italian people. I want you to teach me Italian cooking. You'd go, there's a screw loose here. (laughs) And um, that happens with white students and even Asian students come to me. Oh, Kat, I want you to teach us hoodoo. Well, so do you have any black friends? Oh, no, I have no black friends. So I have to stop right there and I have to say to them, look, I'm not going to be the white waitress who serves you the food cooked in the black kitchen. Not my job. Um, so are you saying that to go and ask your black friend what their um, religion is or what their their relatives have uh, practiced in the past? Well, yes and no. Remember, folk magic and folklore is separate from um, a system of magic. In other words, just as an example, in my course, uh, homework number one is the folklore of your family. That doesn't mean what magic spells your family did. What right. folklore did they have? If you step on a crack, who does it hurt? <laughs> doesn't break your mother's back. <laughs> yes, right. See, you step well, so you, right? And that rhymes, and that's European because it rhymes. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but there's other ones. For instance, if, if you're a little child and your baby teeth fell out, what happens to the baby tooth? Goes to the tooth fairy. The tooth fairy. Right. But did you know that if you were Russian, it would go to the tooth mouse? Yes, I've heard of that because. Right? And if you yeah. were Siberian, it would go to the tooth rat. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I actually so didn't know any of that. These are local customs. They're beliefs. They're not a religious belief. They're, so I'm not saying you have to ask someone about their religion. Well, in my course, homework number one is the folklore of your family. And if you are black, Number two will be any other, you can ask an Asian, a Jew, a white person, a, anything. You can even ask an African person who's not African-American what their folklore is. That's what I was just going to ask you. because it's not my, about skin color. It's about culture. Okay, my good but friend. If white, but if you're white, homework number two is you have to ask an African-American, make friends, 
and ask them about folklore, not about magic spells, just about right. folklore. I would never do that. But um, I have a friend downstairs, um, and she is um, half white and half um, African-American. Mm -hmm. And I've given her, like, um, stuff she had asked me for, certain things, like, uh, she'd asked me, like, what it does and um, things like that. So should I go down and ask her one day and say, oh, hey? You know, you would make friends. That's the whole thing. Well, we're already friends, so. Okay, so uh, you make friends, and you sit down, you and you say, for instance, well, you know, I'm studying, a, I'm taking a little online course in anthropology, and one of the things I was supposed I to... I was. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, that's what this is. And you say, I'm, I, one of the things I, I was sent to do is ask people, what kind of customs do they practice on the holidays? Like, what do you do at the New Year's? Or are there any beliefs in your family that mean good luck or bad luck? That's and, awesome. I'm going to ask her. Yeah. And then you have to share. You have to say, now, in my family, we do this, Right. Because mm -hmm. you have to share. It's not pumping somebody. You have to share. Sure. You'll, you'll find out all kinds of interesting things. And if a person is of a mixed culture, mixed race, as you want to call it, mm -hmm. you'll find that you might get something that's English. And you'll go, oh, well, that's so – I already knew that. That was English. But you might get something that's very African. You don't know. You just make friends and you ask questions. And um, I find that that's one of the best ways to learn. And if somebody says, oh, we don't do hoodoo in my family – you just take it for what it is. Some families do, some don't. It's not some secret knowledge that all black people have. I have to tell you this. This is an odd thing, right? So I, um, I work with a, a oh. gentleman who who got hired, and I, I sort of trained. His name is James, and I, I think he is I love of you. African descent. He, he's a black man. His <laughs> accent is a little bit odd to me, and unfortunately, I'm not that familiar with African accents. His accent is definitely not mine. So I, I know that. And, he has uh, a hard time um, hand, uh, hearing him. A, yeah, he had a hard time training him, and Kristen knows the story about mm -hmm. James. Well, I have not heard from James for for a few months because we've been, you know, in the COVID nation and, yeah. <laughs> you know, working remotely. And, uh, you know, he went on from doing what I do. I work in IT, by the way. I work uh, I in, in phones mostly and VoIP. And that kind of stuff for a large retailer. Mm -hmm. And uh, he came in and he was helping out with some of the, the duties and that kind of thing. And uh, make, make, making his mark. And um, he continued to work there, but we closed down. And I hadn't heard from James in, I, I would say, at least two months. Uh, mm -hmm. We didn't talk every day. But he happened to message me today, which I thought was kind of odd. Really? Because I was thinking about, yeah, he did. He did. I'll show you, Chris. Okay. <laughs> he, and he wished me blessings for me and my family and asked me how I was doing and that kind of stuff, kind of out of the blue, which I thought was odd, considering we had this interview coming up, and I've been thinking about this, and I, I knew um, that you had this sort of uh, prerequisite. Of yeah, but I'm going to tell you, I'm not talking about Kenya. I'm not talking about Nigeria. Association. I've studied Ugandan folk magic. There's some great books on Ugandan folk magic. No problem. Go check them out of the library. I would but, never talk to is it, about magic to this person, though. Well, but I have I'm to understand like, our conversations so are extremely limited. And it was right. really odd out of the blue that he would just message me. And it's like I synchronicity. Just, I just wish you yeah. blessings to your family. At the same time, your husband emailed me. Stuff I was thinking about asking you. Yeah, because Chris and, was and just asking me. 
which I, I found really strange. And mm -hmm. I was like, wow. It really is a lot of synchronicity <laughs> today. Say, it's not about skin Sorry. colors. Mm -mm. Africa. No, no, it's not. I don't think it is. Either. And um, no. Ethiopian customs are different than customs from Senegal. And you'll find um, similarities, um, especially in North Africa, you'll find similarities with Sicilian and, and Spanish and, you know, uh, Maltese and especially Sicilian folk magic. There's a lot of similarities that are more similar than either of them are with South Africa, for instance. But there are things because of the where the slaves came from. Each nation that enslaved people had mm -hmm. a concession in part of Africa. So where the English owned was different than where the Portuguese owned and where the Spanish owned. When those slaves were brought over, they were brought to the Western uh you know, to the Western Hemisphere colonies of those nations. So the Portuguese had their part of Africa and they took their slaves to Brazil. Now, they also did some trading among the slaves and there were trades made off of boats and landing in different places. But um, you'll see that the Brazilian uh, African folk magic is different than the folk magic of Georgia. And in some places like Cuba, where they killed off most of the natives, not all, but they killed up a lot of them. Horrible. Um, there, there isn't as much native component, whereas in the United States, there's a large native component in hoodoo because so many people ran away and ran west and joined the Cherokees and got all the way out mm -hmm. to Middle Tennessee before they kind of, you know, hunkered down and stopped. Right. Even all the way to western Tennessee, down to the river. So, so those things make each thing different. So. Um, one of the first things I tell people is not about skin color, but I'm always amazed. I have a, I have a friend who's from Kenya, and we talk about it. And there are, there are definitely similarities. I would never have thought that Kenya would be ostensibly similar to Hoodoo, but there's a few things that are similar, but not 100% overlap. And you were saying about West Africa itself? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That it came from? A lot of it came from, well, and then came central, over here. I'm going to say Central and West Africa. Central, okay. Um, so there's a, a there's a town in Louisiana called Angola. Well, that mm -hmm. doesn't refer to the West Coast of Africa. That refers to Angola. Angola, right? exactly. Oh, right? In New Orleans, uh, where the uh, slaves were traded, was called Congo Square. It wasn't called Benin Square or Ivory Coast Square. It was called Congo Square. So as the slave traders went. They would get people, they wanted to buy people. Those people didn't want their grandmother caught or their children sold. So they would go farther east and capture people. So it was, I mean, there were black people complicit in the slave trade. And so many people were brought out of central West Africa to West Africa and then transported because the West Africans kind of became complicit in order to save themselves. They would like would be called like a capo in a concentration camp. It does. It breaks my heart when I hear things like this. I, I can't see or like movies yeah. like this and it's really bad. You know, How about but now? I'll get through it. There you go. You're going. You got but it. There? Oh, yeah, I'm, there. Movies. I'm going to tell you, have you ever seen the movie Amistad? I think most people have seen I it. I have and yeah. it broke my heart. It's very heartbreaking but one thing about it is very interesting. The slaves all didn't communicate with each other because they all spoke different languages. Yes. Yes. And one of the things you'll find in Hoodoo is that the same object may have different names because those are different African names from different parts of African cultures. And in some cases, when a child was sold as a baby and raised, um, you know, 
kind of abstracted from its own family, it, it ripped away from its family, and the child was raised often as a house slave or as what they called a, a slave companion. Like they had a white child and they wanted a slave companion, they wanted a black wet nurse, so they bought a woman who was uh, with child, and then black she would too. have her baby, so she'd nurse her baby and mm -hmm. the white baby. That baby might grow up with very little understanding of African culture. They might have more uh, Western culture around them. And um, you can see this in blues music. You'll find um, black musicians who one would think had a pretty much of a of an African-type repertoire of music singing songs that have an Irish, say, uh, background. And mm. um, it's, right. it's not, you know, in other words, cultural sharing was not just voluntary, it was also enforced. But mm -hmm. there also was cultural sharing that was voluntary, particularly in um, areas where there were um, what I call mid-middle people to that moved between the white dominant Northern European culture and the African slave culture. And those people were Sicilians and Jews. And most of the Sicilians uh, had some Sephardic Jewish in them. You know, one point one third of Sicily was Sephardic Jewish before they were made to convert or die or leave. And so wow. you'll find these um, uh, places where you have fisheries. Boston is one. Um, mm -hmm. New Orleans is another. New York City. And any place where there was a large Sicilian or Portuguese uh, uh, population of fishermen on the West Coast, there were a lot of Portuguese and Sicilians in the Bay Area where I grew up. Um, they often functioned as middlemen between the white society and black society, as did the Jews because the Jews were not considered white at that time. We have a um, very, uh, we have a town here, and it's called Fall River, Mass., mm -hmm. and it's um, mostly dominant with Portuguese people. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. Up where I grew up in Northern California, up north where I used to uh, live, town of Mendocino, there was a part of town that was called Portuguese Flat. Oh, my goodness. Portuguese was the local pronunciation for Portuguese. Right. Now, it was on the map, says Portuguese flat. No, and I believe somebody, it. <laughs> somebody said, oh, that's just offensive. It's like derogatory, right. It's, it's, right. It's it is. So, um, so they changed. Now the maps say Portuguese flat. They, <laughs> there you go. But, you know, where, where my husband was from, from Middle Tennessee, um, his family were um, farmers at a town that was called Nigger Camp. <gasps> And no. this was a place where runaway slaves lived among the Cherokee Indians. Oh, I can't even that. My, I was grown up, uh, brought up, I should say, by my mom to say it's like a swear word. You never yeah. say that. Never. And oh. when I hear it, I cringe. It's sad. Yeah. Well, I don't cringe because it was on the map and I'm not. You know, no, I understand. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm just saying these things. This is our history. You know, this is our history. Exactly. What it is mm -hmm. um, in the West Coast. Hudu has a tremendous uh, admixture of Chinese material, but not just any Chinese. It's Cantonese Chinese, Taoist, and it no came kidding. from the um, Chinese railroad workers. There was um, a mix. The workers on the railroad were Irish, black, and Chinese, and uh, they all mingled together, and they all shared their ideas so that in, um, in the Hudu that I grew up, they had lucky Buddhas and things like that. But that Buddha isn't the Buddhist Buddha. Yeah, that Buddha is the Taoist Buddha, which is, you know, it's like another appropriation. The Taoists appropriating the Buddha. It's just wow. it's 
kind of funny in a way. And, you know, we use hell money. People would put hell money on their altar. But then I met a guy who was um, Puerto Rican, black Puerto Rican. And he was like, oh, you know, we don't use fake money on an altar. That's, you know, you have to use real money. It's a real sacrifice. It's an offering. And I'm like, well, that may be what y'all Puerto Ricans think in Florida. But in the the West Coast, we all used hell money to write our petition on because it was it had, you know, great Chinese stuff on it. And it was like powerful, you know, spirit money. So every every form of hoodoo can be varying by based on who's around them. You know, if there was a Chinatown in Memphis, all of you know two blocks square, um, and that influenced Memphis hoodoo to a certain extent too. Be- why the reason the answer to the question why is drugstores, because um, all of these roots and herbs once you get into an urban environment you can't get them, so you have to go to a drugstore. So the Jewish pharmacies served the black community, and the Chinese pharmacies had their own herbs. And even after the um, herb drugstores were kind of driven out by the FDA, the Chinese wouldn't abandon that. When I was young, uh, I was told by an old lady in, in one of these hoodoo shops where they said they couldn't get a certain plant. And she, they said, we don't have it. And I was ready to walk out the door. She pulls me over and she says, look out the window. And over there, diagonally across there, there's a Chinese drugstore. Go in there and you can buy that that herb right there. So oh, wow. she knew that that herb was available. So that is something that is um, where is, people's cultures is sort overlap. Of where, where, uh, Lucky Mojo kind of got its start, like you were able to provide these sort of goods to people. Like um, I would like to talk about uh uh, goofer dust and lodestones and their importance and origins. Um, what did that? What did that come from? And I can't imagine that was always available. You know, at your local Walgreens or drugstore. Well, <laughs> well, yeah. So goofer dust, goofer um, is a um, Kikongo word, kufwa, and it means corpse powder. Oh my. So this isn't, it's not the same as, quite the same as graveyard dirt. It is a powdered corpses. And this is still used in African magic. But um, goofer dust in America became, um, usually has graveyard dirt in it. It might have snakes and snake meat or snake skins ground up to a powder. Usually has red pepper. It usually has sulfur. There's different recipes. Uh, there was a man named Reverend Harry Hyatt who went around in uh, with a primitive recording device um, and um, called a teletophone, and it was What's a cylinder. Name? A cylinder. His name was Harry, Harry. Middleton Hyatt, H Y A T T. Thank you. And he went around for um, from 1936 to 1940, and then again in 1970, and he recorded over 1,600 interviews with Black Americans about hoodoo, and he published it himself. And uh, but in any case, uh, and he made these wire—not wire, but um, cylinder recordings. Unfortunately, the recordings had to be turned back in to be resurfaced with wax. You know, they were expensive, and so they're all lost. And during oh. the war, he turned them all in as you know war materials. Unfortunately, but but he transcribed them all. And um, so these transcriptions exist. And in in dealing with those transcriptions and when you read the what's the Hyatt interviews the 1600 interviews many of the people he knew their names and what they did many of them were professional root doctors mm-hmm. and you'll see a varying um, uh, varying degrees of familiarity with scientific literature with Western esoteric tradition with Jewish traditions with Chinese traditions and they will mention these things 
he was trying to look for what I would call rural hoodoo, and he discounted some of his best interviews with people in cities because he felt they were too urbanified, that hoodoo was already changing by 1936, which it was. But I came into it in the 60s. He had not yet published. He published in the um, 70s. And um, the books that I had available were Zora Neale Hurston's Mules and Men and Newbell Niles Puckett's doctoral thesis from the University of North Carolina, which is called Folk Beliefs of the Southern Negro, which is a very racist book, but it was his doctoral thesis. And uh, it's been published as a book since the 20s. So, you know, I went in there and tried to see if this stuff was still being practiced, and it was. Um, But what I found out was that the variations had become more profound because Hyatt only interviewed in 13 states, and I started on the West Coast, where a lot of black um, shipyard workers had come out for World War II to work in the shipyards on the West Coast. And so this is who I grew up with, the kids of those shipyard workers. And um, and their parents and grandparents, they brought the grandparents out after the war. And so what I was learning was mostly Louisiana, but not just um, New Orleans, but like um, Lake Charles and um, Jenner, Louisiana, and Monroe, Louisiana, and even up to Eunice and, and Ville Platte, Louisiana, where, where those people came from. And then a lot of people from Mississippi and some from Memphis and some from East Texas, Houston, any place where there were boats being built. And so those folks had a certain form of hoodoo that was still rural, but it had become urban. Um, it, it, when you when you look at what it is, you you see that it it wouldn't be what it was if it wasn't in America. It's not purely African. It's right. very eclectic, very well. Yes, but within a constrained orbit. Sure. In other words, you can't just say, "Oh, what I do." I teach this course, and I have a a, a story I always tell. This lady, you're supposed to send in an herb. You're supposed to pick the herb. You don't have to grow it, but you're supposed to pick the herb, dry it, tell what it's used for in hoodoo, and send it to me in a Ziploc bag. This lady sends me these dried purple flowers, and she says, I don't know what this is, but it grows outside my apartment in uh, L.A., and purple stands for power, so it must be used for power. And I'm like, no, this is some subtropical princess bush, and for gosh sake, it's not used in hoodoo, and um, you can't just make things up. You know, there's a you have to respect the elders who teach it to you. So absolutely, um, there is a constraint on it based on plants that were common in the South, plants that were sold in pharmacies, and um, plants that were used. Where does the, that power come from? Do you think is it a collective consciousness kind of thing, or it just that it, this is what worked then? So we got to continue to do this. Well, I'm going to go a little farther than that. I, I, I don't uh, go for the collective unconscious. Or I, that's not my thing. Um, but I do believe in oral tradition. Absolutely. When Hyatt, when Hyatt went to Waycross, Georgia, for instance, just one town, he interviewed dozens of people. But if you listen to and just segregate out the spells that came from Waycross, Georgia, there's a certain similarity to them. So someone in Waycross was teaching other people in Waycross. When you... Uh, look at the um, spells from Princess Anne, Maryland. They have a certain similarity. 
when you look at the spells that were taught by people who were at um, Old Point Comfort and, and other places, um, they begin to have a more uh, English, especially among those who were sailors, and you start hearing about ghosts and, and the dead on ships. and Ghost ships. And ghost ships and all that stuff is like very English sounding, but you wouldn't have, I never heard that growing up from, from kids that I know whose families were from Mississippi. They didn't talk about when the birds came into the ship, it was a sign of the dead and all that you know, that was not there. And they had their own things, which seemed more Native American to me. So Hoodoo mm-hmm. takes root wherever it goes, but it, it is slightly different. So when um, Jim Morrison sang Mr. Mojo Rising, yeah, he, he was more or less quoting, you know, the earlier blues players, I believe. Nope, nope. Mr. No? Mr. Jo- nope, yeah, Mr. Was- Mojo, nope, not, not so. Mr. Mojo Rising is an anagram for Jim Morrison. Work it out. Okay, an anagram, meaning that uh, if you you change the letters around, it'll spill out his name? Yes. Wow. Uh, It's very interesting. Yeah, uh, that's that's awesome. An apostrophe. (laughs) I'm just just telling you what it is. I didn't know that. (laughs) My gosh. Crazy, huh? It is. What does mojo mean? Mojo is an interesting word. It's a word of uncertain derivation. It It is... not necessarily an African word. No African um, corresponding word to it has been found. There, are, There is a word that is similar, which is moyu, but it would have to have gone through kind of a Spanish mill because in, in the Spanish it would be moho, right? And right. it's possible that a Spanish person heard that and then spelled it with a J. And, um, but moyu means um, a prayer and a moyu is a, a little, like the ashes of an ancestor that is used as a little um, amulet or put into a statue to en- en- enliven it with the spirit. I don't think that that is necessarily, you know, mojuba. There's all these words that mean prayer and stuff. And it could be that, but that doesn't refer to a bag per se. And there's another whole theory that mojo just is a corruption of the English word magic. And this makes actually a little more sense because other names for it are conjure bag. And conjure is an English word, you know, to conjure something up magically. Um, Another word for it is trick bag or tricker bag. Mm -hmm. That comes from Native Americans because they had trickster societies and they had tricker gods. and and Yeah. And to (laughs) trick somebody is a hoodoo term. Um, In fact, if you if you check out Earl King the song Trick Bag. She done put me in a trick bag, meaning she made a mojo with his spirit in it. Now he's tied. He's caught. Wow. So trick right, to, bag. Do, to do a trick. And, and this was also uh, hoodooed was, a, I think, a term. Hoodooed, yeah, similar. yeah. And in the, old, in the 19th century, you'll see goofered as a synonym for hoodooed. Right, and, back oh, to the goofer dust. Right. Mm-hmm. And hoodooed and goofered both are ne- have negative connotations originally. Goofer dust retains the negative, but hoodoo, by the 1930s, when Hyatt was interviewing people, there was he interviewed one lady who kind of spelled it right out, and she's really, uh, it was very clear. He says, she's a spiritualist, and she, you know, she tells him that, you know, all this stuff about spiritualism and about ghosts and about this and the other, and then he says, do you do hoodoo? And she goes, I don't do that contact magic. And oh. then she proceeds to give him like a half an hour's worth of hoodoo spells. <laughs> <laughs> wow! <laughs> but um, but she's saying I do evil magic, and mm. so hoodoo had this connotation because hoodoo first enters the English language as a Gaelic word, 
spiky ghost. It first enters the English language in the 1850s on a hoodoo ship. And a hoodoo ship is a ship that is found at sea abandoned or with dead bodies on it or no bodies on it. A ghost ship. A like, ghost ship. Okay. Exactly. Or a ship on which people have repeatedly died. In other words, a ship that has mm-hmm. sunk and be pulled up and rebuilt, and then people got the plague. Lots it's, of scurvy. Because, and scurvy, yeah. I was just right. thinking that. So yeah. that's also called, that ship has a hoodoo on it, meaning that ship is uh-huh. haunted, right? So um, when you hear about these hoodoo ships, and then the word hoodoo comes to the Americas with the, with the um, African-American sailors, they picked up this Gaelic word. Oh. And it got spread around that way. Yeah. That's a big silly. Maybe in a negative context. You yes. Know? And you know, it's funny because in North Carolina, I've talked to a number of people from North Carolina who say, why do you call it hoodoo? We don't say hoodoo in our family. That's a bad word. But the people from Mississippi, I'll go, what you talking about? Hoodoo, that's what it is. Right? Mm-hmm. right. So these these ideas shift. And, and I'm sure there know. can be celebration just yeah. as much as there can exactly. be person. Yeah, and hexing and that kind of thing. It's not all negative. Hexing is German. Yeah. What is it? Hexing is German? The hex is a German word. Hex is, hexencraft is witchcraft. Hexerai. Right. Yeah. Gotta love my heritage. Yeah. (laughs) I have a question for you. Sure. So, does meditation play a role in hoodoo, and what steps do you take mentally before performing a spell or creating a magical object? Well, uh, meditation is not usually used in that sense, except among practitioners who have some basis from new thought or new age or Buddhism or Hinduism, which there are. But generally speaking, prayer is what would be used. A moment of silence and then a prayer. So um, most um, prayers would be cadenced, like in Baptist cadence, and the form used is uh, uh, what was sometimes is called the deacon's prayer, which is not the pastor's prayer, but the deacon's prayer. And the deacon's prayer always has in it two major parts. Uh, well, three parts, I guess you could say. But the first part is um, approaching God and praising God. The second part is um, noting all of God's previous favors. And the third part is asking God for a new favor. So if you look at, go online to YouTube and you just put in deacon's prayer and you'll find a whole lot of them, some good, some bad. But the deacons usually go down on one knee, they rest their head on their elbows on a chair and pray on a chair. It's very, it's a black Baptist church thing. And then it, it'll have sections in it. Oh, deacon, no. the, the deacon's prayer is free form, but it's used in hoodoo to prepare yourself. So it might be things like... Um, as I said before, Lord, I come before you with a humble heart and head bowed down. Um, Lord, you're great, and I know it. You know, you brought me out of a narrow place into a mansion. Lord, you've done well for me, and you praise God, you know. And the deacon's prayer often had, contains things like, um, I serve a mighty God. He didn't have to uh, wake me up this morning, but he did. And, and then everyone kind of says, but he did, because they know what it's going to be. It's like a call and response, you know. Uh, and then there's another section about um, about Jesus or God's um, powers, such as you know, um, you know, He's a rock in a weary land. He's a a, a doctor to the sick, uh, and 
he's you know he's a lawyer to you know and so forth. It goes on you know and then that it, that may go into whatever the need is. So the need might be someone's sick, and so then you would kind of diverge at that point and say, Lord, someone's sick and needs your help. Lord, um, someone's in the hospital today, Lord, and needs your comfort. Lord, someone needs a doctor to heal, and Jesus is the doctor. And there's this whole passage is about, I call on Dr. Jesus. Then you would do the spell. So those spells are pre- preceded There's an by, emotional connection there, though. Well, it's you know. it's a prayerful, I don't know about emotion. I mean, I, I, I believe emotion plays a part in it. But it's not just raw emotion. It is a formal form of prayer. The deacon's prayer is formal. And um, there's in the Baptist, there's something called hooping. And um, so some people will, will do those prayers and hoop. It's old-fashioned now, but it, it's a gasping kind of a hooping noise. And it's become very was very popular in the Baptist church, not so popular in Pentecostal. And um, there's a rhythm, there's a cadence, uh, usually in the key of G, um, sometimes the key of F. If you don't carry a tune well, you might drift down into F, but most people are in the key of G. Well, because they're tuning themselves, they're, it's called tuning or toning to an instrument. And the instrument is hitting those chords while they're preaching and praying. And um, so you do that. And be rather that is much more common than meditating. It, yeah, again, I'm not going to say it's emotion. I'm not going to say it's energy. I'm going to say it's prayer. You know, uh, you, you, it, there's no way around it. The word prayer is prayer to me. So right. what I was taught, like, let's say, for instance, I'm going to give you an example here. I'm proofreading a book. Okay, so here's the thing. An influence bottle made with master root. Write the person's name crossed by your command. Roll it around a finger of master root dressed with influence oil. Tie it tight with red thread. If you work with a person's photo, write a short command on his or her forehead on the photo and roll that around the root. Place the root in a narrow bottle, seal it, and keep it where the person will pass by but never find it. Guess a hoodoo scroll. What's left out, and I explain in the book, what's left out is the prayer because you don't have to say there's no one way to say that prayer. I have so to ask you a this question. This emotions that you go through, but it would be, you know, um, you'd call this person, let's say we call this person's name is Skippy Jones, you know, and you say, Skippy Jones, I command you to um, make good on that debt you owe. Skippy Jones, and you write the name, Skippy Jones, right? Skippy Jones. And then you write across it, the debt you owe or whatever, pay the debt you owe. Um, and then you roll it around the master route, you know, um, uh, Skippy, I am the master and you must come around, is roll around, come around to what I say. And uh, then you, it's dressed with influence oil, you know, and then tie it up tight. And when you tie it, normally you would tie it, knot it, tie it, knot it. So you're going to put in at least nine knots. And then um, you can write the command on the person's forehead too. And then you're going to put this in the bottle. And you would just, you know, speak your, your prayer, speak your mind as you do this. You're talking as you do this. I was going to ask you, you can't, and not that you can't, but if you're atheist, you don't can't use prayers to Jesus oh, yeah, and God. Yeah, well, that's a good question. If you If you ask who's an atheist, and again, you're talking about um, different communities. There are more atheists who are of Northern European extraction than there are atheists who are black Americans. Uh, and atheists, you know, if they don't have a God, um, it would be really hard for them to say the 23rd Psalm. I, I don't know. Right. But there are atheists. Here's an interesting thing about hoodoo. Most of the formulas are secular in name. For instance, pay me oil or money drawing oil, love me oil. Crown of Success Oil, those are secular names. There are a few that refer, like Moses Oils, King Solomon Wisdom Oil, Mm -hmm. that refer to Old Testament figures. Very few that refer to saints, although I make a line of saint oils for my Latin American customers because they have their own folk 
lore and folk magic based around folk Catholicism. But that's mm-hmm. a different thing. That's brujeria, not hoodoo. And uh, and Corindismo, not hoodoo. But but there are black Catholics, and they will call on Catholic saints. There's a whole world of Catholic folk magic that's huge. It's huge. It's its right, own right. thing. Catholic folk magic, Polish, Slavic, German, Danish. Catholic folk magic is like all over Europe. You know, St. Anthony, St. Anthony, please come down. Something's lost and can't be found. That didn't come out of voodoo. Catholic folk magic is this huge vast territory and that is integrated into catholic black culture in the same way that the baptist religion is integrated in but there are fewer black catholics but they do they but it doesn't have to do with voodoo it has to do with catholic and i'll tell you the catholic folk magic i mean i have a friend um papa newt is his name um He's Polish, and he's working on a book for me to publish on Catholic folk magic. It's an amazing field in and of itself, and um, and it does have overlaps with hoodoo in that, insofar as there are black Catholics. But it's it really goes back to France and Spain and and Italy, and it's real amazing stuff. And even the Philippines has its so own stuff. Are you saying that that there was not a masking of? Um, trying to pray to a certain god or no 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 you take this up I mean, you know uh-huh. these guys converted to Christianity back in the in the in the 100 ADs you know I mean they they don't I mean you could say oh yeah it's a masking of their worship of the goddess Diana or Luna or whatever what are these Italians right. doing they're playing right, exactly. Blessed exactly. Virgin Mary right and so like when you want to take off the evil eye in an Italian context you have this olive oil and you have to drip it in and it's this whole big thing right it's this huge ritual sure, um, sure. but you would you know you would call on a virgin they don't call on Jesus so much in the Catholic Church they have saints a saint for everything like Saint Martha the Dominator uh, there's, uh, you know, this is a an old um, uh, French thing. There was this dragon supposedly came. I believe it was probably an alligator or excuse me, a crocodile. I believe it was mm-hmm. a crocodile from the Nile. It got off someone's ship and it was terrorizing this town. And this little girl goes out and she captures, her name is Martha, and she captures this um, uh, dragon. And so she celebrates. There's this whole town that they have this festival and the little girl leaves this paper mache dragon around. And wow, I mean, they, they didn't need no African. That's awesome. You see what I'm saying? They got their right. own. But, but then, when you talk about masking, but then in the, in the Dominican Republic, there's these pictures of this Martha the Dominator, and she's leading this dragon around. And so Africans who had come from directly from Africa looked at that, and that reminded them of an African woman who was known to have saved a child from snakes. And so then they worship Martha the Dominator, but as colonialism wears away they begin to produce someone produces a picture of a black woman with snakes and they call her martha the dominator but her name wasn't martha so that is the masking uh, among right. the oral traditions right Correct. exactly martha the dominator pre-existed by hundreds of years before sure and her festivals were celebrated in france so Catholic folk magic is deep i mean it's deep and wide and there's a lot of it things like i guess you guys aren't catholic but just as an example, on Palm Sunday, there's these palms, right? Yes. And, uh, you're given a palm, and you take it home, and it's this is widespread in Poland and and in uh, over your uh, bed or oh no, you keep it, mm-hmm. and if a lightning or thunderstorm approaches, you burn it, and if you burn the palm, really? palm your house will not be struck by lightning. So. That the heck have I been? Because I went to Sunday school and I went to yeah, I went to catechism 
But where the heck have I been? Because I don't like thunder and lightning. Yeah, well, just this is what I'm telling you. You have to go do this. <laughs> I mean, this here's another one. You know, um, the, that if you wear a scapular uh, when you dive, you know what a scapular is? A little um, cloth that came from a monk's clothing. And you have it. It has a little square on the front, a little square on the back. And then the back's between your shoulder blades, your scapula. And it's called sure. a scapula. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Have you ever heard about that? I've, no, I know what it is. Yeah, Our Lady of Carmel, she's holding the little scapulars, little baby Jesus in her arms is holding his little miniature pair of scapulars, right? So it's a common belief that if you die while wearing the scapular, you don't have to be in purgatory and only until next Saturday, because in Saturday, the Virgin Mary and the baby Jesus come down, and they have their angels with them, and they pull everybody out of purgatory who died wearing a scapular. Wow. That is not doctrinal Catholicism. No, that is not. <laughs> I did not learn that in uh, catechism. But I learned it from a ton of my friends, and not black friends. This was I learned this from all Mexican friends mostly, and also, uh, you know, Mediterranean, Sicilian people would say that. And um, even to the point that um, there's something called a surfer's scapular. So they take the scapular instead because this cloth is going to get all wet and moldy and crap if you surf. So they would um, make it in plastic, little container, so the string is out, but the little plastic container is there, and you wear the, these are miniature scapulars, and they're, they used to be called surfer scapulars. Yeah. Do you know oh. the tradition behind um, things like a railroad spike being used in hexes and curses? Mm. Okay, now that is, the railroad spike is interesting. That comes from Africa. Africa had a better developed iron uh, mining and iron smelting culture. In fact, the Africans had invented stainless steel, and the Romans... One of the reasons they were trying to get into Africa was to get the stainless steel. You have to use a high temperature to make stainless steel. And African edged blades were considered superior. And there's a lot of raw iron around. There's a lot of lodestones, which are lumps of magnetite that have been struck by lightning that are exposed and they become magnetic. And so Africa was this source for these lodestones and for iron work. And when uh, slaves were brought, skilled slaves were brought to America in the colony time period, not later, many of them did wrought iron work. And they there's many an old plantation where they have beautiful wrought iron and they say, oh, this was all made by the slaves. But these guys were trained in wrought iron work before they came to America. So iron work was really much a part of it. The coming of the railroads led to the use of black people um, to drive spikes. You all heard John Henry, right? Steel yes. driving man. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of the of steel or iron, cast iron or wrought iron or or um, tempered steel or whatever, or knife blades is super, super African. Its use in hoodoo is from an African tradition, but Americanized. So the idea that a railroad spike and the, but see the railroad is iron, the horse, the iron horse, it's the train. Um, black people were not allowed to be engineers. They were not allowed to be conductors, but they could be firemen. They could be maintenance of way workers, which meant they went around repairing track. And they could be, later, they could be the Pullman porters. And the idea of these cast-off spikes, you know, spikes that had been in the railroad. In other words, they had been used spikes. Just go buy new ones. They had to come out of the railroad. They had certain power because trains run over them over and over and over again. Oh, yeah. And so these spikes... um, have a certain power. Now there are there are many African derived hoodoo spells that involve pins, needles, nails, tacks, and spikes, and they kind of are graduated in size. 
And so you have a doll that you stick pins in, which people mm -hmm. call a voodoo doll. But mm -hmm. most older people called it a doll baby. And vo the word voodoo was only added later in the 19th century, by mistake, I think. Um, so, And there are needle spells where you want the eye of the needle in or out of the liquid that you're putting it through the cork of. Or you break the needle so that the eye of the person you're working on, they can't see you. There's many different ways to handle needles. There are sewing spells in which you use needles, and every time you pierce with a needle, you say your curse or maybe your blessing or whatever it's going to be. Mm -hmm. And then there are nail tacks. And so to, to nail down a house, you, know, you might use uh, uh, tacks in the corners where the carpets are, and then outside the house you would use nails, big old common nails, outside the house, and then outside the edge of the property to put down the railroad spikes. So that's a triple protection of your property. How about a um, railroad spike through somebody's heart, leg or something when they die? Oh, or you mean like staking vampires? No, just a person in general. Um, maybe like through their, like in their coffin or something. Never heard of that. More likely if they died bad and you didn't like them, you put an egg, a raw egg in each of their hands. Oh, kidding. And, uh, oh, yeah. And um, the egg is going to, they say when the egg explodes, the, the person who murdered them will come back and confess. But oh, I've never heard of putting railroad spikes in a coffin, no. So when you mentioned the um, idea of railroad spikes and thread, speaking also of knotting and tying knots. Yeah, but you don't knot railroad spikes. That's a different, I mean, what I'm talking about was the needles. The needles. And the that, thread. Right, you would, would do that with nails that. and that kind but, of thing. But with coffin nails, now that's another thing. Coffin nails are valuable because you go to the graveyard and you have to dig down to where the coffin is. And these would be um, finishing nails, right? They don't have a head on them. But I was taught long ago, and I know this entered into hoodoo long ago, long before I was born, any nail that's been buried in graveyard dirt becomes a coffin nail through contact. So if you have graveyard dirt and you put, sprinkle it on nails, or, or you can, rusty nails, um, that they become known as coffin nails. And coffin nails are used um, in all kinds of spells to hold and fix things, um, Sure. They can be used in curses and things like that. Yep, yep, yep but absolutely. You can buy something that looks like the nails that built the house that was in 1620, but isn't quite the same thing as the coffin nail, but symbolically it's similar. Yeah, and people will use what are called rosehead nails, square nails, handcrafted square nails. You can still get those. And people value them. People also value old keys in hoodoo, old skeleton right. keys. And, I, uh, I think you actually can consult it on a movie that of that same name, right? Skeleton yeah, Key. Yeah, the Skeleton Key. Skeleton yes, Key. yes. I, I was a consultant to that movie. That's true. I, I actually like <laughs> that movie. I love that movie. Yeah, it's a cool movie. Did you do other consulting work? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm available and I've consulted with other people. Um, gosh, one time Warner Brothers had me and Nagashiva down. They had this giant party and they set us up. It was kind of fun down on the back Warner Brothers back lot. And we had a whole hoodoo shop and we brought things down and it was a it was like one of these promotions for their distributors and stuff and people wandering in and we had to pretend like it was a shop but we had to give everything away for free and they paid us for it and we got paid very well to present wow experience i guess but yeah i i i, I do consulting i have no problem with that that's excellent and I love the, the lucky mojo site i mean it's amazing There's so many things my goodness on there yeah well, we tried. How did, we tried to have how did uh, Lucky Mojo get its start? Well, 
back in the 60s, back in the 1960s, my then husband, this was my first husband, I've had four. My then husband and I had a company called The Funky Company, which was a, Funky was a popular name at the time. And um, The Funky Company, we made various things. We made um, magical supplies. We made um, what you might call organic chem, uh, uh, cosmetics. We made a medical herbal things. We, um, we also even baked bread. I mean, we did everything. He was a wood crafter and we had the funky company. And so I made ointments and oils. I also did horoscopes and so forth. Then the funky company had, we had a catalog and everything. Well, we broke up and then I got together with another husband and um, I kept the horoscope company, which was the Durga Shiva Augury Company. And then um, we had a, a commune we lived on. It was called uh, the Garden of Joy Blues. The first commune where I lived with the first guy was Tolstoy Peace Farm. Anyway, then we had the the the, the Garden of Joy Blues, and we same kind of products. We made them all, but we also we depending on who was there, we made quilts and we did spinning and weaving mm-hmm. and raised goats and we made cheese and we had a whole little thing going on with that. That was husband number two, and then he and I broke up. Then husband number three was in the comic book business. And so uh, he felt that he would be criticized if it was known that he had married a witch or something. I don't know what he thought. He just didn't like it. And, but he liked astrology. So he was very controlling of me. And he said, don't tell him. You can tell people you do astrology, but don't tell them you make these oils and burn candles on people's asses or whatever. You know? <laughs> so so um, I kept the Durga Shiva Augury Company. Um, but I worked for Eclipse Comics. That was his company with him and his brother. And he and I broke up, and um, he left very abruptly and um, emptied the bank account. And there was oh, a dear. oh yeah yeah it was one I'm of those so things. Sorry. And, oh yeah. Well, you know, you get over it. There was a woman who was our office manager. Her name was Susie Bosselman, and she was 54 years old, and she was in tears because her paycheck wasn't there. What's she going to do? And she said, "What are we going to do? No one will hire me. I'm 54 years old." And I said, don't worry, I'll come up with something. Meanwhile, I had also been working for Organic Gardening Magazine, and I'd been given $40,000 to go write a book on sustainable agriculture for this CEO of this company who couldn't write and he had ghostwriters. But that all fell through when he was found to have gotten into some trouble with the company and whatever. But the publisher told me I could keep the $40,000. Oh, He had been given 100000 nice. and he broke off 40000 for me. So they just bailed on the money. So I used that money to start a company so Susie and I would have a company. So we were selling off the old comic books from Eclipse. It was a company called Comics Warehouse. And I just start, decided to restart the Funky Company. But by that time, the word, the name, the Funky Company, didn't, you know, just didn't ring anymore. And Lucky Mojo was the name of a product line that had been used by a guy named Morton Newman, who was one of my distant cousins, relatives, who was in the hoodoo business. But he was a chemist and a, a cosmetics maker, and he also made incenses and a real cool guy. Well, anyway, he had died in 85, I think it was. And a trademark expires after seven years. And so I waited seven years and I thought, okay, I can take that name, Lucky Mojo, because nobody was moving in on it. And so in 94, I started the Lucky Mojo Curio Company. Originally, I called it the Lucky Mojo Products Company for about 30 seconds. I mean, it got on the internet that way for about a week. And then I went, nah, I like Curio better. So that's how it started. But I've been doing this all my life, pretty much, in between being a writer, an editor, whatever. I'm a verbal person. It's an amazing site, and I love the art, and uh, I think that goes maybe back to your comic book history. 
Yes. Well, I, clips I and I, you know, I, it was the time I was a comic book collector. Yeah. So I'm very familiar with the Eclipse comics. Tell you, I'm going to tell you something. One of the first things I did was some of this old Valmore art. It was done by a man who was named Charles Dawson, and he was African American fine artist and when the depression came he was a painter and when the depression came he couldn't get a, a job so, you know all the artists were out of work during the depression so he began doing label art for black hair care products and uh, morton newman who ran um the valmore which is valmore beauty company and also ran a thing called um famous products and another one called king novelty and another one eastern trading he had a whole bunch of companies that were all in chicago uh, all out of the same big building and he owned I had another one called um, House of Diamonds. He was just a, a you know an entrepreneur. He hired Charles Dawson to do his art, and Charles Dawson was an excellent artist. So I collected Charles Dawson original art, and so some of my labels are Charles Dawson art because again the trademark had expired, and I knew I could claim it, and I did. And then I also had a lot of friends in the comics business who said, "Oh, let me do a label for you. Oh, I want to do one of these too because it's a certain style." So a lot of my labels are by comic book artists, and um, and a couple of them are by comic book logo designers like Gaspar Saladino, who used to work for DC, did Superman logo, you know, things like that. To me, it was a thrill to have, you know, my comic book friends. You know, Lavender Love is by P. Craig Russell, is a very famous comic book artist. You know, uh, Lady Luck is by Trina Robbins. Law Keep Away is by Steve Leoloa. These were friends That's of mine. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. That's so, really cool. Absolutely. You know, it, it's a you simplistic a style to it. And it's all like the kind of style that, you know, people in our age group, and, you know, I'm going to include Chris and his. Sorry, Chris. Sure. No, that's fine, babe. Grew up with. <laughs> and, you know, we remember the ads of uh, of old, if you will. You know? one of, yeah, one of, the, one of them, Influence Oil, which I saw you put on that little promo first. Influence yeah. Oil, that's from a piece of art by Joe Orlando um, of DC Comics. No um, kidding. No kidding. No, I, it was like, wow. Whatever. I just, it's whatever, kind of like paying tribute to yeah, the yeah. Oprah style, oh, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I really, there's another guy named Nelson Hahn who I also liked his art. He was a commercial artist and I've used some of his. I like basically like a 1930s brush style or 1930s, 40s. The um, compelling um, oil uh, logo, which I picked up from uh, an, another defunct company, was actually a swipe from. Um, uh, Ibis the Invincible comic. In other words, they were swiping back and forth. And there's a guy named uh, Charles M. Quinlan who did art for some of these labels that I have and worked for um, another uh, company called the Oracle Products Company back in the 40s. He was a comic book artist and he did a series Black Cat and Kitten and he did a, he, he was a, a comic book artist as well as doing labels for Hoodoo products at the same time. Yeah. I didn't realize you had... Um modern artists uh, paying tribute to the previous art. Oh, yeah. Stuff. I mean, comic we book We love the art. Art is I grew up with. Amazing. I mean, I loved X-Ray Specs and... Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, all that, that stuff. And in I fact, love, one of my, yeah. my first uh, influence of magic in any way really was a, a comic book ad by Gavin and Yvonne Frost called uh, The Magic Power of Witchcraft. They were... Oh, yes. Yeah. If you remember that, right? Mm -hmm. And I thought, this, oh, this must be, this is like the Bible of magical things. And it was a big influence on, on my growing up, even though it was a little bit of a letdown. It was uh, influential in that it was advertised in comic books. Yeah, well, you know, see, for me, I would go into these hoodoo stores. I, I started going into hoodoo shops to shop 
when I was 14. And I would see these pamphlets, which had these beautiful cover art, mostly by Charles Dawson. And I was just so taken with his art. I didn't know his name until I started buying his original art and I found some pieces that were signed. And then I realized he was this other guy who had done all these paintings, but this was his line art commercial style. And um, I looked around, I thought, my God, I've got stuff by him all over the place. And the other one was Charles Quinlan. So one of these books, uh, Legends of Incense, Urban Oil Magic, that's a Quinlan cover. Um, the book, Master Book of Candle Burning, that's by Dawson. Um, the um, Secret of Numbers Revealed, that's by Charles Dawson. I can spot them. I'm an art spotter. And I really, I really love them, and I want to give them credit. And I do a lot of reprints of these older pamphlets. And I put them up into a 96-page format. If they're short, I'll add a little bit more or combine two books to make one. But I'm trying to keep those things in print because they really were the the foundation of urban style hoodoo, most of them started being in print from thir 1936 onward. And um, that's important to me to, to kind of pay homage to that art. That's my joy. That's my, my thrill. Cause oh, when I was a colorist in comics, I was, you know, I did, I did um, color guides for covers and things like that. And comic book color seps, I, I use a limited palette. It's just the same palette that would be used in comics. So that's why you see a similarity thing i i kind of promised the listeners and um i'm open we can talk about not that, that is mojo bags oh, yes yeah, sure. please you know the kind of history and i i know you went through um kind of a hard time learning what they were yourself and you know did the actual real work to see what people were producing as far as what mojo bags were and what can people do on their own yeah, so um, I don't know if I went through a hard time. I, I self-imposed on myself that I wasn't going to take mojo bags for granted. I wasn't going to say, hey, there I've seen one, I'm going to make them. I don't do that. I'm, I'm a Taurus, and we're very steady-minded. We just go one step ahead of the other, you know. And I have my moon in Aquarius, which is also a fixed sign. I got my Jupiter in Scorpio, which is a fixed sign. So I'm a pretty freaking fixed sign person. Oh, and I've got my... Saturn and Pluto and Leo, so like I'm, you know, just a fucking fixed sign person. You're going to find out what these things are about. God, I love her. So I, I decided that I was going to not call myself a mojo maker or Toby. Toby's another word for him. Oh, and Toby's an interesting word. i got to say that. Toby. T-O-B-Y, but it seems to be, oh, as best we can tell, it's from a, a word Tobe, T-O-B-E, with an accent on it which is a um, Kikongo word for a hunting charm that has been tied closed. It's a tied okay. And so that uh, word persisted. That's, that's an African word, Toby. Um, and you can hear it in um, the Memphis Jug Band um, song where, where Hattie Hart is the vocalist, and she says, I'm, um, I'm going to New Orleans to get this Toby fixed of mine. Um, it's spider's nest blues. So Toby is is Hong, mean and Congo means hunting charm clothes. Yeah, Kikongo. Kikongo is the name of the language. K i k o n g o. Kikongo. Um, it's a Bantu language in the Bantu language family. Uh, so uh, uh, Tobe means a tied hunting charm. A hunting charm's been tied up. It's like in a bag, you know. So when I was a, a kid, there was a back in Oakland. There was a guy, and he was called a Toby maker. He made Tobies. And um, and so that was a word that was new to me until I heard that Spider's Nest Blues, which I heard pretty early on in my life because my, my stepfather was an old record collector and I was a record collector and we liked that stuff. So 
so yeah, so there's other words, conjure bag, whatever. So I made a vow, going back to our topic here, what I went through to become a Toby maker. I uh, made a vow that I would buy 100 mojos, and I was also going to get 100 readings, too. I made these two things. I'm going to get 100 readings and make 100, buy 100 mojos before I can call myself a Toby maker or a reader. Now, I got the 100 readings, but that was not that difficult. Buying 100 mojos became a costly proposition. And at some point, I kept on buying them. I had 100 of them, but I lost them in this flood we had in uh, Guerneville. Um, oh but I, I, some of them were in a box that wasn't flooded, you know, whatever it is. And I have a lot of them. And I, I teach making these tied charms. Now, they, that's a worldwide method. Methods, remember, are different than cultures. So making a, a charm bag is worldwide, uh, but that doesn't mean it's a mojo. And so, um, like they have something called a troll bundle or troll passe in Sweden. It's a, it's a little bag with stuff in it, right? But they have different stuff and they do it a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you can even look at ancient Egypt and they have these little tubes mm-hmm. that are capped in their amulet boxes or whatever. So I'm working on a book. Um, it'll be out real soon with my friend Lara Rivera, co-wrote it with her called Bottle Up and Go. And it's about um, bottle spells, jar spells, box spells, any kind of spell that's in a container. But I've also written a book called The Art of Making uh, Mojos, and that book is just about mojo bags. So um, a mojo can be made for a purpose. It's really considered like a prayer or a spell in a bag or in a doesn't have to be a bag. It could be wrapped in a piece of paper. It could be wrapped in a piece of leather. It could be sewn in a piece of leather. Back in the day, I saw them made out of the scrotum of an animal. Like they would take rawhide, you know, the scrotum, and they would cut it in a little circle and whip stitch it up. Um, there are many, many ways to make yes. these. There's not one way, and every maker has their own ways. It's like chocolate chip cookies, whose recipes you <laughs> like, you know. Right. And uh, there are recipes that are well-known, very well-known recipes. But even they, usually, a mojo will have three ingredients to start. But they can have many I don't know many that have more than 13 ingredients. It's another lucky, unlucky number, lucky, unlucky. But it's a, but seven is good, you know. But some people don't count. Some people just throw in what they got to throw in. But it's not considered a hand, a mojo hand, unless you have a handful of stuff, and that would be three. So it might contain a root, a mineral, and a personal concern. In other words, a thing of the body of the person you're working on or of yourself. It might contain a petition paper. And the petition paper might be wrapped around the personal concern and then put into the bag as one unit. Or Not everybody counts what's in them. And um, they usually, when you go to a maker to have them made, they usually tell you, come back in three days. They don't usually make them while you're watching. And uh, you come back and they have your mojo for them. When you make the mojo, it is very common to, to breathe into it. Or some people will light a match and put the the flaming, you know, the match in it and pull it out and put the match out as it comes out okay. using it like they'll use an incense match or use an actual just a plain old sulfur match. Mm-hmm. Um, some people will take the whole mojo, make it up and tie it and hang it by its string and then rotate it in the air over incense in a, in a circular motion. Some people will mouth spray it with whiskey. Um, that's a more old fashioned way to do it. It's more African. I've seen documentaries on that. Yeah, right, right. there's a that whole lot of different ways to set it to working. It, to fix it is to, to prepare it for its purpose. To set it to working is to, you know, put into it what you're going to put into it. So 
I tell people, you can buy my book on the art of making mojos, but I really recommend that you buy at least a couple of mojos to see what you're aiming at because I teach this course. And uh, I, I really got a rude wake up. The last homework for the course is to make a mojo and turn it into me for a grade. And somebody turned in a mojo that was literally the size of a baby's pillowcase, a crib-sized pillowcase. And, uh, and it was open at the end, like a pillowcase. And inside it were packages of herbs, not just herbs, but like the plastic wrap packages that I sold the person just stuffed into the pillowcase, right? So this person was not clueful. And no. so um, I then had to say, look, I'm going to sell you a little flannel bag because that's the most common thing to put them in a flannel bag. But the flannel bag actually came about more in urban hoodoo because prior to that it was just a square of flannel and you just could wrap it up. Men usually wrap them because they don't know how to sew, but women will sew a mojo. And if you listen to the Hyatt uh, speakers, the women would say, oh, you sew it. And some of them will put a crocheted edging on it, you know. Mm. And I had a one lady that I, I met in Chicago who was a, a seamstress type sewer. And she made little packets and she put little, that little loopy crochet edge on them. You know what I mean? A little cute mm -hmm. edge, like a handkerchief edge on everything she made. And she wow. was... Uh, so everyone does them differently. There's also a jack ball, which is a you start with the things that are a mojo, but you wrap it up in yarn or string. Right. And it can be hung from a loop and be used as a pendulum to divine the fate uh, or knowledge of the person whose spark of life is at the center of it. So um, there are many ways to make these things, and they're made for many purposes. But it's a deep subject. It's not just like I'm going to throw three things in a bag and it's going to be... Uh, a mojo bag you got to no. really understand it so i put this book out and i offended one lady she got really angry she goes who is she to say you should buy a mojo from your elders and she was really angry because i'm not black and she's black and she was like you know how dare this woman say this and i'm like god i was being respectful i was saying buy buy a couple of mojos from your elders don't just waltz in and say i've learned how to do this off the internet you know right but um I do believe you should dedicate yourself to the study of it. You can learn it in six months, three months. It's not like, you know, a college-level course, but you do have to understand the theory of it, I think. And, and you have to understand the, the fact that what is in it is a wish, a prayer, mm -hmm. an intention, a desire, or and or a person's spirit who you wish to work upon and or the spirit of another being who you wish to have help you. Right? That makes sense? Well, you got like I say, you got to get part of it. You know, if Madonna said, I don't hang out with Jews, but I want to do the Kabbalah, I would have cursed her. You know what I'm saying? Right. But Madonna has Jewish friends, and she's, she's <laughs> you know what I mean? She, she gets it. Um, you know, the, the, the point of it all is, is that how many friends you make in the culture that you're, joining but always remember you're a visitor you know you're a joint you've joined exactly. hoodoo hoodoo hasn't joined you exactly you know? right and right. so Very, that means you really got to so be friend I'm, I'm jewish i'm i would go to we had christian friends you know in in uh, when i was a little kid my my mother said now this little girl carol uh, carol is obviously she ain't jewish and little carol good lord's my mom's name <laughs> and uh, yeah right and so little carol invites me to go to her home and my mother who's just come over from, you know, Hitler's Germany and it's like barely speaks English. And she says, listen, they're going to maybe do something when you get there. They're going to say a prayer before they eat. And it's going to be, they call it grace. Mm -hmm. And 
Um, if they call upon you, all you have to say is, thank you, Lord, for this food. You don't have oh to my say God. But if they don't call upon you, just close your eyes, fold your hands, and when they say amen, you say amen. Right. I and know I the like, prayer. How would my mother know this? I was like, wow. So I'm like six years old. So go over to Carol's house, and we all have chicken dinner. And, and everyone says, now we're going to say grace. And they all fold their hands and put their head down. And they all say, thank you, Lord, for this food. And then mm -hmm. I go, amen. And I was like, wow, my mother was right. I could become a friend to these Christians. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was my first introduction to another religion. And I, I think that that was good advice on my mother's part. When they say amen, Absolutely. you say amen. And that's that's right. Yeah. My mom taught me that as well. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter if they, if they, if they, how they, what they say or how they do it, you just go along with it because you're a guest. So with hoodoo, it's the same thing. There's a page, and you can write this down. It's luckymojo.com. Mm -hmm. forward slash all one word the excuses dot html the okay. excuses dot html check out that page and laugh yourself silly there's people who <laughs> want to join my course one of them was an asian woman and she was a young chinese asian gal i would call her mandarin chinese not cantonese chinese she had a chinese accent she goes well i would love to take your course i want to take your course but there are no black people where i live and I said, well, dear, where do you live? She goes, Manhattan. <laughs> and I said, really? Really? I said, well, all around you. She goes, oh, it's all Asian people. And I said, okay, so I'm quoting an old song. I say to her, so take, take a walk. I said, take the A train, if you know that song. Take the A train, it'll get you to Harlem, right? <laughs> and she goes, the A train? I said, yeah, take the A train. I figured she'd know the reference, but she didn't. Mm. She goes, I can't take the A train. And I said, why not? She goes, it's dangerous. Uh, well, there you go. There you go. The but I do know the green line, the orange line. And yeah, the red, the red line. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. So I am going to go to that. That's that's. Thank you. Very I appreciate interesting. it. Yeah. It's so interesting that you, you, um, course, you know? cross the culture mm -hmm. with the actual sorcery. You know, that yeah. it, it, it makes mm -hmm. a difference. Well, I'm not um, intrigued. Yeah, you know, I'm, I also know Jewish folk magic. I also know quite a bit of Mexican, not so much Central American and, and South American, but I know a lot of Mexican folk magic. Um, and as I said before, you know, you can buy books on Ugandan folk magic if you want. And uh, the spider divination of the Cameroons or whatever you're interested Good in. Good Lord. Yeah, right. But but um, but if you're going to really do more than just browse these topics, y you have to make friends and ask them um, about their culture. What I do is I, I just talk to people just as an example. If you get into a group of white and black people and the white people are telling me, I don't know how to collect folklore from black people. And I'll just, I, I did this, I've done it. Just turned to my black friend and said, say I had a broom and was sweeping your feet. And they'll jump back. Oh, like that. They just, they twitch. They can't take it, you know. And the white people go, what was that? And I said, well, you got to find out now. Um, but I would say it's the same thing to my black friends. They'd say, well, I don't understand um, Judaism. And I said, well, let me just tell you this. You can't show a baby to uh, people until the baby's 40 days old and you have to show it on a pillow. You can't be nursing the baby and you have to have a red thread on the pillow. And then my, my Muslim friend from Afghanistan goes, Oh, we do that too. 
I thought that was only in Islam. I'm like, oh, no, no, that's Jewish. And they're like, oh, far out. But right. the people are going, right. what What are you talking about, 40 days? And, and you know, 40 and I'm like, days, 40 nights. because 40 days, is, the baby is not connected to the earth until 40 days have passed. Wow. And so uh, you feel there's a power in uh, the crux of these uh, traditions. Yeah, well, so, so things you take for granted in your family may be used in a different family. Like I've had people say to me, I had one woman, she took my course, and I said, well, what is your ethnicity? She said, I'm Italian, and she was from Muncie, Indiana. Family worked in some sort of factory, and she was, they had been there since World War II, and she was Italian. She had dark skin, but not black, but it was dark skin for an Italian. Didn't look Italian to me. Didn't look even a little bit Italian. So she was at homework. What was the homework of your family? And she says, um, oh, in my family, you can't point at a pumpkin it's forbidden and i'm like that's not italian that's native american and um because it would be a taboo if you were part of the squash clan in cherokee you know so she got her dna tested and sure enough she was native american and her family had just called themselves italian because it was easier to get along in muncie indiana after they moved out of the hills and hollers to call themselves italian a lot of people do that folklore the folklore didn't lie and I think it was a pretty good imitation of a of a um, English folklore. I can talk English folklore for hours because I've read all the books on not all the all the books, but when I was a, a kid, lot. there was back in the, my my parents had an antiquarian bookstore, so we had all these older books, and there was a whole fad for books on English folklore of the you know of the Midlands and English folklore of Cornwall and English, you know what I mean these were oh. the folklore of Scotland, and we these we had a scholarly out of print bookstore. And we were in Berkeley where the, you know, the colleges and stuff. And we'd get in these books and I just, I snapped them all up. And I, I, I began memorizing English folklore till it was like I was swimming in it. But then I realized that it, there was plenty of English people reviving it during the Wicca craze in the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. All that English folklore was being um, repackaged, you know, by people like, Ray Buckland and the Frosts and, you know, all silver, you know, silver Raven. All those people were repackaging English and Scottish and Irish folklore. They didn't need me. And um, so I, but I can, I, I know it, but it's not my primary thrust at this time. My, my husband and I have a um, nonprofit um thing uh, uh, organization called the Ironwood Institution for the Preservation and Popularization of Indigenous Ethnomagicology. If you go to ironwood.org, our last name, Y-R-O-N-W-O-D-E. I have it. .org, mm-hmm. um, we have up there bibliographies and articles on indigenous ethnomagicology. We also publish books. We published a book on Norse folk magic and one on North Asian folk magic, folk magic of Manchuria and Mongolia. And oh. uh, we're, we're working with another author on a book on Jewish folk magic. We're working with another author on Catholic folk magic. Let me ask you something, um, if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, if a person is of Norse descent, if a person is of Jewish descent, do you recommend that they follow the magic, the folk magic that uh, follows their heritage? That's a good question. That's a very good question. I would say, yes, they should be familiar with their own culture before they branch out. 
But there may be reasons. You know, if you grew up in a family that practiced rape and incest or alcoholic beatings, you might want to escape your culture. So I can't force that choice on people. Um, there are people who feel that they don't belong in their family. But I have found that if you do study the folklore of your family, even if your family was not the best family, your ancestors are there to protect you and teach you and guide you. And um, they will have something to say about it. I'm just going to give you an example from my life. I was I took part in a, um, this was back in the early 70s. This was a retreat. It was a, I, I would call it budding new age type retreat. It wasn't exactly new age, but the idea was you were supposed to get in touch with your spirit. And um, one of the exercises we were to sit and we were to call upon the oldest ancestor who would help us. And um, do you meditate for that? Yeah, well, this was a meditation. This was a new age style. Okay. Uh, or yeah, new age style meditation. This was not what I do. I was I was a a, a student in this course, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I attended. Somebody else did the, the presentation, and so I called upon. I said, "Who you're supposed to ask? Who among my ancestors is the oldest ancestor who will help me to learn?" And bingo, up pops King Solomon. And um, that was a difficult moment for me because I knew that in my family I, that. I am descended from King Solomon, and not no lie, that's just the truth. But I was with all of these sort of blonde Germanic hippies, and they're all going, <laughs> my grandmother Dorothy, you know, my, <laughs> you know, my, my my cousin and Millie's aunt's grandmother, you know, and I'm like, oh shit, right. oh shit, <laughs> and and I was like, and I looked around and I realized I was the only Jew, and if I said King Solomon, they would fucking flip. So I said. <laughs> Well, I saw a very old beard in there, and that was it. That's all I could say, um, because I, I realized that um, I was following a different path than they were. Right, exactly. And that everybody should contact their own ancestors. What she said was really right on. She said, the oldest ancestor in your lineage who will help you. That is a very important statement. And then we asked Kat about the role of ancestral altars in hoodoo another thing that the internet has brought us hoodoo altars i'm telling you that's that's the internet um that is conflation <laughs> conflation of hoodoo with santeria and with voodoo i was young probably wicca, too. and wicca yeah when i was young nobody that i knew called that an altar that was called my my working space my bureau my shiffer robe my kitchen table if you had photos of people that were ancestors, that's my memory place. Or I've got a little, you know, I've got a table here where I do all my work. Mm -hmm. I didn't hear the word altar until um, the 90s. And um, Really? The 90s, yeah. not the 70s or 80s? Um, no, I mean, I heard it. I, I shouldn't say I did not hear it. But only among those who were members of the spiritualist church. Um because Baptists don't usually make an altar, but the spiritualists will, especially if they are influenced by Catholic spiritism. So there would be, they would make an altar, but um, it, you would go, for instance, if, it, if the person you went to to get the, the work done had a church, was a spiritualist church, like Mount Zion Spiritual Church, or, you know, Reverend so-and-so, or Bishop so-and-so, they would have an altar, and it would be set up as an altar, and you would put your candle or your prayer on it. But most 
home workers did not call what they did an altar. It's the top of the piano. You know what I'm saying? It's the flat part on the top of the upright piano. Wherever it is, you can call it an altar anthropologically, but that word was not in common use. Now it is in common use throughout the black community. It just has spread from the uh, early 90s. Everybody calls those altars now. Um, But what they do on them and how they use them varies depending on... You have to clear them and, yeah. uh, All of that. A lot of Wicca has come into hoodoo. Um, and other new age thoughts, the use of sage smudging, for instance, has come right. into being. But in the old days, the, uh, the there was not so much sage smudging as people would use pine needles, because that's a Cherokee Indian thing, to right. Native American, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, But all of these things meld, and there's a lot of black people who are part Native, and a lot of Natives who are part black, so there's a, this idea of this you know, smudging kind of got in. The idea of using um, uh, powders to draw designs on the altar Mm -hmm. um, seems to have come from Native American sand painting type things, or maybe it comes from Jewish designs, um, triangles and six-pointed stars. If you look back to 1936, there's a book called uh, Legends of Incense, Urban Oil Magic. The guy who wrote that, we don't know his real name, but he called himself Louis de Claremont. He talks about drawing triangles on the altar and stuff. So these things exist um, back there. And the word altar was used, but not it's not the universal phrase then that it has become. And I was surprised because, of course, I was raised to read books on anthropology. So I go to someone's house and I'd say, do you have an altar? Look at me like, no, I don't have an altar. And I'd say, where do you do your work? Well, I just use the top of my bureau. See, so... But on the other hand, many people would set up an altar or they'd say, this is my dedicated space where I do my work, you know. Um, And there are altars of offering, altars of veneration, Mm -hmm. and altars of work. And an altar of work is really where you do a setup, where you do, you know, a a setup for a spell on that little table. Some people use trays. If you use a tray, this comes out of the spiritualist church, you can set up a spell on a tray or a cookie sheet, and mm-hmm. then you've done with that spell, but you're going to come back to it like three days from now or a month from now or whatever. You put right. that tray up in your upper cupboard in your kitchen or in your closet. Then you bring that tray down. That spell is all set up. You're ready to go again. That's a working altar on a tray. So that would be your working space? and Yeah. I mean, you could call it an altar. I mean, you know, I'm just saying it's not an altar in the well, sense of a Catholic altar. Exactly. Exactly. Um, a working altar usually contains um, jobs or work. They're sometimes called jobs, spells, but they're called jobs if you're a professional. Jobs that are in progress. Like you might be doing a spell for someone to get out of a court case. Yep. And you got a honey jar on the judge, and you got a deer's tongue for the lawyer, and you got all this stuff going on. It's on a tray. That's and the elaborate and tedious spell, yes. Yeah. And um, and you're going to be working this thing for months, and you you know... And you put it on a tray. You don't want to have your ta- have it out on the table all the time. So you just put it down when you're working on it. Mm. Right. And that comes there's out of, comes out of a lot of people that do that. But sometimes um, if you have something, you can't. Somebody goes in a bedroom, say, and they have just a little working space. Mm-hmm. You maybe put some a sheet over it for a couple of days or something. To- oh, no, 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 no. No, I wouldn't do a sheet. I, uh, the, the old man I knew, one old man I knew told me this. 
he lived in a boarding house. This was a guy who'd been, had a hard life and he just lived in one of those flop houses in Oakland. Mm. And he said, oh, you know, when you're going to burn your candle, uh, mm. you take it out of your paper bag and you burn your candle and you burn it for 15 minutes. You say your prayers, you snuff it with your fingers. You don't ever, never blow it out, but you lick your fingers and snuff it out. You put it back in your paper bag and twist the neck of your paper bag. Put it under your cot and you're, it's good to go. Uh, Get back to those mojo bags. And I still buy mojos from people. Um, and I keep all the mojos that my students turn in, too. I have a very large collection of them. Um, and I, I'm interested in the way they are made and who makes them. Uh, but, yeah, I, I wanted to learn my craft from practitioners, not from theory. You know, if you go to, if you go to the Association of Independent Readers and Root Workers, it's expensive nowadays to buy a mojo. But you can ask for mojos for different topics or different um, life conditions. I still have some that were made by Larry Wright, um, and he's long gone. And um, and they're funny. I mean, you know, he, he made these he made mojos for years. You can t- I take them apart and I show them to people. Look what's in them, and you know that it's pretty obvious. He knew his business. You can look at the herbs and the seeds, and you know what they are. Mm-hmm. But he was also in the seventies. He was putting in little trinkets, uh, you know, that were little plastic charms. I never would do that. I would have gotten something that was metal or something nicer. But he was—he just used these dime store plastic trinkets to represent things, like a little snake or a or a, a rat or something like that um, for a destruction mojo or whatever. And I'm like, wow, this guy, you know, he—he just—it—it—it it, it looked kind of tacky, but he put it all in together with with real herbs and real roots, you know. With energy and right. prayer, so, prayer, we'll, we'll say. Were they not in, like, leather bags that were sealed? Larry Wright made all of his in leather bags. Most people make them in flannel, red flannel. Um, okay, and why is that? So Larry, Larry Wright, um, he sold these, uh, you know, through um, through his catalog and through magazines. His were very good. They were very well made. And he used um, shoelace, you know, that kind of brown, uh, not that flat shoelace, but, you know, that round boot lace, you know what I'm talking about? It's like a light brown and dark brown lanyard type weave. Anyway, he used that heavy boot shoelace to tie, to tie him up. It was sturdy and carry that stuff forever. So it just depends on the maker. Hey, Caroline died, she told me Son, you don't have to be a floor Hey, Caroline died, she told me Son, you don't have to be so rough. I'm gonna pick you up in mojo, oh Lord, so you can strut your stuff. Oh, and strut your stuff. Welcome back from our short intermission. We hope you're enjoying our interview with Kat Ironwood. That song was Aunt Caroline Dyer Blues by the Memphis Jug Band. Which appropriately. (laughs) So appropriately. Includes the lyrics, son, you don't have to live so rough. I'm going to fix you up a mojo. Oh, Lord, so you can strut your stuff. Now for the part of the interview a lot of you have been asking us about. We discuss making mojo bags with Kat. Well... 
let's start with some things that are not specialized. We're going to start with some stuff that you'd have in your kitchen in this time of coronavirus. So let's just make a, a money mojo. And a money mojo would be, uh, you know, to bring in prosperity. So um, we're going to use um, some herbs that are commonly found. If you can't find any of these herbs, use pumpkin, powdered pumpkin pie spice. But I'd like you to use the whole ones because the powder will sift through the cloth. And um, if you have no piece of red flannel or something, don't use felt. Felt isn't flannel, red flannel. If you don't have that, you can use um, handkerchief cloth. You can use a piece of leather. Um, you can use any kind of... Uh, there used to be people who would make them in Chinese brocade cloth, and they'd call them Chinese bags, Chinese luck bags. And back in the 20s, these were African-American people making them with Chinese cloth. So there's no one way to do it. So you're going to need some kind of a covering. And... Um, so this gets you some cinnamon. So you don't want long sticks of cinnamon because they're going to be too long. The mojo is going to end up being small. If you can imagine something that you're going to tuck into your brassiere if you're a woman, depending on how big your breasts are, that's about how big your mojo will be. And what? for men, <laughs> right? Mojo. Ladies with little breasts are going to wear a little mojo. I'm a small cat, no. <laughs> well, just, you know, you can make a mojo the size of the end of your thumb. <laughs> And you can make a mojo the size of the yeah, palm right. of your hand. Depends on how big you are. Right. You the palm of your hand is big. I'm telling you. That's big. But I've seen men who carry a mojo that big. They carry it in their front pocket. They don't have a bra. See? Of course. <laughs> but it'll fit right in their jeans pocket or their pants pocket. See. Okay. So you're going to be making this cover for it. Right. So you're going to get some cinnamon. But you don't. If it's uh, cinnamon bark is all you have, you're going to break it down. If you have oh. cinnamon chips, that's fine. That's for that's used for heating things up, but in a good way. It's for money. It's for um, making things hot. Hot and spicy uh, comes in two different ways. There's hot and spicy that is beneficial, and there's hot and spicy that's um, uh, destructive. So this is cinnamon is hot and spicy that's good. So is ginger and cloves and things like that. Hot and spicy that's destructive might include red pepper and uh, black pepper. So we're going to be using cinnamon. And you're going to put in some cloves. If you've got whole cloves, that's good. Cloves are for friendship. Mm -hmm. They're also used in Jewish folk magic against the evil eye. But they're also used for money. Um, and among Catholics, they represent the nails that nailed in Christ to the cross. So they always have some spiritual component to them. But friendship is good for money because you have to ha you can't make money on your own. You don't have a printing press. You're not the government. So you have to have friends <laughs> business. So we've got cloves, we got we got um, cinnamon. Cinnamon. Now the next thing that you can use in here, uh, in your mojo, mm -hmm. uh, might be um, depends on what kind of money you want. Let's say you deal drugs. Uh, you're going to use oregano because that keeps off the law, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but if we say um, you're going to be a sex worker, you might use rose petals, which is a love thing. Or let's say you're a uh, a gay uh, sex worker, you might use lavender and rose uh, to get some gay sex going. Or let's say you're a factory worker and um, and you work with your hands, you might uh, put in uh, some symbol of what you do with your hands, a, a talisman or token, monkey wrench, a little miniature monkey wrench, or something of that nature that represents your job. Um, if you are... Um, if you are 
you know, work in a financial business, you might just put in a coin. A coin would do for any of those, um, but you can put in an herb too. So the coin should be a coin that you found. And this comes from the Irish idea of the Irish have this whole thing in their magic about face up, face down, pointing mm -hmm. up, pointing they down. They do, yeah. Very restrictive. So a coin that you find face up or a coin you get in change that's an unusual coin um, would be a, a good um, coin to use. You can mark it with your initials. Um, if you want it to, to be a valuable coin, you could use a silver dime made of sterling silver, like the old um, Liberty uh, head, what are called mercury dimes. If you want to use a modern coin I, and you're a woman, you could use a Sacagawea coin that has Sacagawea, the lady Sacagawea. Indian, took the uh, Lewis and Clark expedition across America with a papoose on her back. She, yep. she's, good, she's good for that. Um, if you have a um, an illegal business, you might want to get an Indian head penny because the Indian is a scout or a lookout. Cops are for coppers, so copper penny. Um, there are many coins that have different meanings. Um, and um, But you don't want anything too big of a coin. You, know? um, you don't need a coin. but So, you know, you could put in, um, if you can get five-finger grass, which is potentilla or sanctuary, that's used for the luck of your five fingers. If you can get a lucky hand root, that's good for your hands, any kind of work you do with your hands. Um, but if you can't get those things in this time, uh, you can also put in um, any kind of a lodestone if you have one. Now, people say, can I use a magnet? Well, I don't like a magnet as much as a lodestone because a magnet is very powerful but very short, you know, sharp, short-acting. A lodestone is gentler. So, yeah, so a lodestone, what you can get is lodestone grit and grit and gravel. You could put in a piece of pyrite. Pyrite is fool's gold, but it's used to attract. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's other things. You, you depend, again, what your job is. For instance, if you're a salesperson, you might put in deer's tongue because that's used to have eloquence of speech. And um, there's so many different, you know, there's a website I maintain called Who Do It A Glance. Um, it's luckymojo.com mm -hmm. forward slash and then the whole these words, Who Do At A Glance. And that is, a, it's kind of long. That gives a, a, just a ton of, um, of uh, herbs sorted by condition. The other website who, uh, is herbmagic.com, all one word, H-E-R-B-M-A-G-I-C, herbmagic.com. And that has a list on the top page, the home page, of all these herbs and their use in magic. If you click the link, you'll get a lot more. You'll get spells with them, too. So that's, But they're not sorted. They're not tagged by condition. you got to just use your browser's find function to find words keywords like love or whatever but anyway going back to this money mojo so once you have whatever you want to use another thing that's used for luck and money are the autoliths of fishes these are called lucky stones or lucky bones or lucky rocks uh -huh. Ma Rainey saying I'm going to uh, New Orleans just to find that lucky rock and they're not rocks they're the bo ear bones of fishes yeah, just look them up. Yeah, I got a webpage on them, Lucky Rocks. <laughs> Fish autoliths, they're called. Mm -hmm. They were used by the Native Americans for luck, and African Americans used them too. And they, they are in inland fish and also some sea fish, um, drum fish, puppy drums, um, redfish. Um, well, catfish have them too, but the catfish ones look more like a leaf. They don't look like a disc. And the catfish 
auto lifts are used by prostitutes because cat house, right? So they were used to draw money to a prostitute. But the round ones that come from the drumfish um, look like a, a half of a split pea. I mean, they're flat on one side and hooked on the other, but they're, they're about the size of a dime. And you can make a fantastic mojo with two of those with a dime sandwiched in between. That's a very common one for getting money and jobs. If all you have is a handkerchief, you're going to tie these together in a knot in your handkerchief. I mean, you're just going to tie it up, and there's your handkerchief. Now, if you want to, you can trim off the handkerchief and just keep it as a little tiny bag or tie it with string or thread and go round and round and tie a knot. But just tying it up in a handkerchief, put the handkerchief in your bra, that's a good mojo. That's a fine mojo. You don't have to be fancy with it. Um, and um, But you want to, when you make it, you, besides the ingredients I mentioned, you want to put some life into it, right? So you're going to pray over it or you're going to call into it. You can put a piece of paper with your name. If you work for a company and they have a logo, make a small printout of their logo and fold up some of the stuff in there and then put that in the cloth. Um, and you can say, you know, keep my job or whatever you want or bring me money. You can um, breathe into it. You can just hold it in your hand and just breathe life into it. You can circle it around in insects. It doesn't have to be any particular kind of insect. So uh, you can um, do just about, you can dab it with whiskey. You can dab it with perfume or cologne. That's called feeding the mojo. So you feed it with a liquid. It should be um, either, like you can use Florida water cologne, Hoyt's cologne, which is used for money. Hoyt's cologne is the best for money. And um, you could also use an oil if you wanted to get like a money drawing oil. Or you can mix it with your personal perfume. You can use whatever perfume you wear on your body. You just dab it on. Usually you feed the mojo once a week. And usually you keep it hidden where no one can see it. Um, there's an old blues song, a number of blues songs. Um, uh, my baby's got a mojo. She's trying to keep it hid. Right. So that's what you have to do. You keep it hid. And there's another old blues song. Keep your hands off my mojo. Um, you can't cut off my luck because if someone touches your mojo, it cuts off the luck. I've heard that song before. Yeah, by Coot Grant and Kid Socks Wellesley Wilson. Um, so those those are um, those are good instructions, and that'll make a, a mojo that anyone could make. But um, study up on it, read a little bit more before you just throw yourself and say, "I'm a Toby maker." We then asked Cat about her wonderful book, "The Art of Making Mojos." All of those books that I've written, most of the books contain 100 spells. 96 pages, you can get 100 spells in. So, like, there's more than 100 mojo recipes, so to speak. Yeah, my books, my books are $9, 90, 96 pages, 10-point type, $9. And, um, Not bad at all. That type's too small. Well, get your brighter light. You can read it. Because for $9, you cannot complain. You've got 100 spells all of them good old authentic spells and um it's, yeah it's excellent it's a bargain now my idea is to make a bargain for people i've been in the publishing business all my life and i come from a family of publishers editors and writers going back oh gosh to the 14 1500s and um my understanding is that nobody should have um books that are you know i, I don't want to make this books that are you know bound in super special leather and restricted to 500 copies. I mean, they're fun to make and fun to buy, but this is magic for the people. $9 is a good price. 
Kristen and I then went on to talk about LuckyMojo.com and the literally thousands of products that are available on that website. I run Lucky Mojo with my husband as if it were a nonprofit. Our nonprofit is separate, but Lucky Mojo is run to not make a profit. We pay the, the people who work for us and make products. They get paid a good living wage. We get paid for work for what we do. At the end of the year, the company is awash to try to get the products out to the people. That's our mission. Yeah, it seems kind of clear to me, and I think that's awesome. So thank you. And like I said, if you want to study or anybody listening wants to study with me, get to know me. Try to friend me on Facebook. I'm very. I'm always right at my five thousand limit. I'm not. I didn't want to become a public figure. So if I can't friend you right away, keep trying. Every few days, I take off the dead people and I buy. <laughs> oh dear! <laughs> you know, that's it. Is that sad? And it is. I, I, I was just I, talking about that. Yeah. Then I spend a little bit of time going through the friend requests, and I get new friends. Um, if you like awesome. it, hang with me. Hang with Lucky Mojo. My shop has a Facebook page, uh, just Lucky Mojo Curio Co. And it, 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 Lucky Mojo Curio, I think is what it is at Facebook. And um, we put out a free spell every Monday. We're, we're, we've taken a vow to put out 100 free spells on Facebook. Um, we have a forum, which is forum.luckymojo.com, which has thousands of pages, about tens of thousands of topics and it's been going since um 2008 have a radio show lucky mojo who root work hour it's been going since 2004 we do free readings on the radio show i have i have come to the conclusion that you can give away a lot of stuff and still make a living thank you for listening to another episode of the dark horse paranormal podcast we'd like to thank everyone for their patience especially cat and nagasiva ironwood if you enjoyed the music in the podcast with all the hoodoo mentions, the old blues music, um, you can find that at, you guessed it, www.luckymojo.com slash blues. Like and subscribe to the Dark Horse Paranormal Podcast wherever you're listening to this. Uh, we have lots more shows coming up. Um, we've been a little bit off track, but we're getting right back on track and we have lots of great guests, our own data, and all kinds of reviews and all kinds of really cool, fun stuff coming up for you guys. So, Give it a like and a subscribe. Be sure to check out our live show, Bigfoot and the Bunny, every Tuesday night on United Public Radio at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, and 6 p.m. Pacific. Stream live on YouTube, BitTube, and Twitch, and on the air at 107.7 New Orleans. For more information on that, visit www.uprntalkradio.com. To find out what we're up to at all times, find our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. Also, check out our webpages, www.darkhorseparanormal.com and www.bigfootandthebunny.com. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Bye-bye.